Welcome to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Podcast. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, and we are very, very, very excited to announce the triumphant return of Trish Lambert, the Tolkien Maven. <laughs> seems like seems like forever since we've had Trish with us. I know. It's so frustrating. I was I, I tweeted it. I know Corey saw it. The last time y'all did it was the last show, I think, and I was at work. I was actually in New York at a client's office, so I couldn't do the, the thing. But the, the, my phone, you know, the Twitter came across saying we're doing it, and I was in a meeting, and I almost, like, yelled out, oh, no, I'm missing it. <laughs> Fortunately, I stopped myself. <laughs> Dodged a bullet. Dodged a bullet. You don't want they to have to try and explain that one. They already kind of wonder about me a little bit, so it's just as well That's I didn't true. say anything. <laughs> don't give them any additional evidence. It would have been really fun imagining, you know, like you trying to explain exactly what it was you were missing. What it was I was missing. Oh, God, that would have been really – because I would have gone all <laughs> Tolkien on them, totally. Yeah, you know? yeah. exactly. Oh, and that, that definitely would have helped. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, anyway, so I've been missing you guys, so I'm really glad to be we've back. Been, we've been missing you as well. Absolutely. <laughs> you, miss some, you miss some really fun conversations. I know. I So I, you know, I kind of tracked a little bit on your Twitter as I could, Dave, and then, you know, it was too much. I couldn't take it anymore. But anyway, so. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of back, good. I'm back to insert good, my non sequiturs, as I always do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We missed them. Um, we we had a lot of good stuff about um, uh, about the the sons of Feanor again. Right, yeah, and the, we that whole the Amros thing. issue. We we addressed yeah. the Amros issue last time. Oh which right, is like, right. You know, yes. Yeah. We finally, put it to rest. It'll never come up again. I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, it will because we we reprieved him. So That's true. Uh, you know, uh, his his uh, his 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 fate is still kind of looming. You know, so we'll see. But uh, did we have like heated debate? Well, no. I mean, the heat had mostly already dissipated. You know, because uh, <laughs> like there were many impassioned posts on this on the discussion boards. So uh, we were mostly in a kind of conciliating mode. Uh, well, I guess we were, that was what for me passes for a conciliation. We were, we were, we were like Feanor's sons at the end. We were like reluctantly going through the motions, but we ah, okay. we lost all of our we'd lost all of our zeal for keeping the. <laughs> like, you were doing uh, it by rote, huh? Just yeah, because we have. Yeah, we better. Yeah, we gotta. We have to. We have to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's all. It's all good. It's all good. We're, I, we should. We should. Uh, we'll be in good shape with Amros moving forward, and uh, and yeah, no, it's good. I'm. I'm. The the ending of this season, and on, on, on just on the whole, is kind of weird. You know, I mean, it's 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 tricky because we don't have the same level of. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been talking about this, of course, for months, but we don't have the same kind of obvious like epic defining climactic event that's happening at the end. We've had yeah. that in the first two seasons, you know, the, 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 I mean, nobody needs any explanation that the, 
you know the chaining of Melkor and the the you know the 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 dark you know darkening of Valinor are like obvious like major uh, you know climaxes that that you're building towards and and so yeah it's it's one one you know the closer we get you know and now this is of course the you know we're planning the penultimate episode here. Um, it, it's kind of I'm feeling it more and more sharply as we, as we get towards it. I I don't. It's not that I am second guessing our choices. I think it makes sense and I think it'll work. Uh, it'll be a different kind of season ending, of course, than we've had before, and that's okay. But it just it it's uh, you know there's a lot of things in it that that make make it feel different and, yeah. and make it uh, 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 sort of more challenging in some ways. Yeah. I'm excited. I, I think it'll be I think well, it'll be I a think strong character moment. Our challenge is going to be this time not ginning up like an artificially dramatic ending, right? I mean, right, right. I know exactly. I'm tempted no. to do that. <laughs> right. Now, Maria is perfectly right. I mean, Maria is just saying that, of course, the rising of the sun is just as significant, you know, That's as those true. other things. It's you know, so in a sense, it's just as epic defining. Even arguably more epic defining uh, than the chaining of Melkor, for instance. Uh, and that's absolutely true. It's just, as she says, less action-y, right? So yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's not the same kind of, like the action that has been happening with our characters is not building towards it, you know, in the same way. It's something that happens right. in a sense independently of, of that. So it's, um, uh, but yeah, Nick, I agree. It will certainly be a relief for our lighting and effects guys. No question about that. Um, <laughs> we'll just end with the celebration of like people who are like, we can use the color red again. You know? <laughs> so it'll be, it'll be good. Um, That's true. Yeah. Production in general will be happy. No more night shoots. Yeah, exactly. Finally, people can like our, our cast and crew can stop living the nocturnal existence or or like going about in darkened studios uh, the whole time. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, um, so um, by the way, listeners, I don't know if this dawned on you, but Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, is also on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late to finish the introductions if you get interrupted. Yeah, that's right. That's good. That's good. That's good. Dedication to duty there, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Strong work. I take it seriously. Okay. All right. Well, before we get too much further in, uh, I, I want to. Uh, We've got some announcements. As always, want to make sure to keep everybody abreast of what's going on. Of course, the uh, the first thing coming up is London Moot. We're now only about a month away from London Moot, April 28th. Um, the call for papers deadline was extended, and that's coming up very quickly on the 26th. I'm like looking at my watch. I'm like, when is the 26th? That's on Monday. So uh, uh, make sure this is so this weekend. If you wanna, uh, if you wanna lead a discussion, uh, read a paper, strongly recommend go to LondonMoot.com. There's a submission form there. Uh, for your call to papers. And, uh, and of course, I hope that uh, as many people as possible will be able to come join us. We've got a great crowd coming already. Uh, so many people that I have been interacting with for literally for years uh, online and I've never gotten a chance to, uh, to hang out with because we have had the Atlantic Ocean separating us. So I can't wait uh, to get over there in April and uh, hang out with you guys. Uh, so London Moot is gonna be great, great fun. Um, 
Also on the subject of great fun, our summer classes are now open uh, at Signum University. So if you want to look into auditing or uh, or enrolling in our summer courses, I encourage you uh, to do that. Go to signumuniversity.org uh, and look at our future courses page. And uh, on any of the course pages themselves, you can look at our courses, uh, read more about them, and there's a registration link on each one of those course pages. So. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's a really, uh, that's a really exciting moment whenever we open, uh, registration for our, for our, our next upcoming courses. The Mythgard Movie Club. So the Wrinkle in Time movie is out. I haven't gotten to see it yet. I'm still hoping to do that. Um, but uh, our uh, panel discussion on A Wrinkle in Time is going to be happening on March 29th. So that's next week, next Thursday night. Uh, so uh, uh, those of you who have, I know there are a lot of people who have been really excited about this film. Uh, have either of you guys seen it? Which, what? What movie? The Wrinkle in Time I have not. Movie? I have not. I have not. Yeah. That was a favorite book of mine when I was a kid. Yeah. And I'm a little yeah, bit on the fence, you know, because it was a favorite book. It's a kind of, you know, having gone through the Hobbit experience, I'm a right. little... I hear that. I hear that. <laughs> I, did, I, I did recently reread the book. Um, did you? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, to be perfectly honest with you, it's... It, I didn't, I, because I, I haven't read it in a long time. I reread it, or I was listening to it while I was taking Wally on walks, and and upon reread, upon rereading, I was like, huh, I don't know if I like this quite as much as I remember liking it. Not gonna lie, um, <laughs> but I am still. I liked it. I liked it better when it, when I was young. I I think for some reason I read Wind in the Door first. I don't know why, and I always kind of preferred that one. I definitely now prefer Wrinkle in the Time, and I am kind of intrigued to see what they do with this adaptation but but you know to your point Trish I will say that in the I see in the um, in the um, the trailer they appear to be referring to the darkness as it not just like the thing on the planet and so that that seems like an ominous sign already of, of changes made One well, change. Yeah, I mean, the main thing I, I, I only saw one trailer for it and I will say the trailer was very striking, right? I mean, it looked like it was going to be a very striking adaptation. I, I, it was not obvious to me whether that meant it was going to be a, a really good one or, or not, but but it was certainly uh, they're they're they were putting a lot into this adaptation. That seemed clear, and so that's again, you could that can kind of go either way, right? Either they're going to uh, uh, totally push it in a in a strange direction uh or you know they're gonna they're gonna do really well with it so um i after seeing the trailer i was like okay i suspect this is either going to be really good or really bad but i and i don't know which one it's going to be but uh oh see zachary says that it was uh, his wife's favorite book as a kid and she loved the movie so there you go we've got we've got a positive review there that's there a good go. sign and the, the casting is looks really interesting yeah, no, exactly. The, the 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 casting, the visuals were were gorgeous in the in the trailer. I was super impressed by the visuals, um, which is interesting because that was one of the primary impressions I had of Wrinkle in Time*, which I actually didn't read as a child. I didn't read that until I was an adult. Um, it was one of the many books I kind of missed as a kid because neither of my parents were fantasy readers. So. Um, uh, and I have always been so content to reread the books that I already have that I was not uh, a, a big explorer myself when I was a kid. So 
anyway, um, so I, as I say, I missed it as a child, um, but reading it as, a, as an adult, I was not really struck by the sort of gorgeousness of her descriptions or anything. That's not like it didn't seem to me to be a huge part of what she was doing. Um, uh, but anyway, it was certainly a very striking element of uh, of the, the 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 story as they were presenting it. So, anyway, um, uh, oh, Carita really liked most of it. She says so. Anyway, yeah. So I, there should be a lot to talk about, uh, and I know that the Wrinkle in Time panel is made up of uh, uh, um, Signum students uh, and staff and faculty, uh, all of whom are really interested. Uh, okay. Almost all of whom are really enthusiastic about uh, about a wrinkle in time. Dedicated fans of the book and and uh, really interested to talk about it. So that's going to be a really really cool discussion. So I recommend that. And um, and their next film after that is going to be Alien. They're doing they're kind of going back and forth between new films and old films. Uh, so they're doing a, a sci-fi classic uh, in Alien and having a having a discussion of that one in May on May third. Uh, and then, of course, Mythmoot 5. Don't forget about Mythmoot 5, Fantastic Frontiers, June 21st to 24th in Leesburg, Virginia. Um, it's going to be awesome. We've got John Garth coming, Douglas Anderson coming, Mark Ockren, the inventor of the Klingon language coming, Alan Sisto and Sean Marchese are coming to do a special episode of uh, uh, the Prancing Pony podcast, for those of you who listen to the Prancing Pony podcast. And if you don't, you should. Those guys are really cool. Uh, I so enjoyed the, the the special session I did with them uh, on Hobbit Day last year. Uh, and uh, they're really, they're really, they're really great guys. And it's a really fun podcast. Uh, and so they're going to come to Mythmoot. They're going to do a live uh, podcast session uh, from Mythmoot. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting to meet them and hang out with those guys. So uh, anyway, so it is, uh, um, uh, it is, Mythmoot Five is going to be is going to be an awesome, awesome experience, uh, and it's starting to approach now as we uh, come towards the end of March. So uh, definitely time to think about uh, registering if you uh, if you uh, if you haven't yet. So um, yeah, yeah. Phil is talking about that how they uh, they 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 mention uh, uh, me a lot on the podcast. You know, Phil uh, talking with them. It was really, it was a really, uh, well, it made me feel old, frankly, because, you know, talking with them on, on their podcast, you know, and realizing that to them, I was like the old established, like, you know, the like the the Tolkien podcast that made them think about getting into Tolkien podcasting and you know they were all like you know you've inspired you know like a generation of new podcasters and I'm like man I did not think I was old enough to have inspired a generation of anybody you know um, wow it was kind of like the moment when uh, uh, when one of uh, one of our Signum students, actually one of our Signum uh, staff, tweeted during Textmoot that she was listening to the uh, to a talk from one of her childhood heroes, and I'm like, seriously, I'm old enough to have been a childhood hero. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! When are we, when are we gonna hit your your ten year podcasting anniversary? Um, that's 
Uh, well, it's kind of vague, frankly, but uh, uh, the official launch of the podcast in its current form was, um, I mean, I first started dabbling around with recording lectures and stuff back in 2007, but it was really not until 2009 uh, that the, the podcast was sort of in official release. So, um, like, you know, on iTunes in its in its current form. So, uh I'd have to, I don't know, like, frankly, I'd have to, I'd have to go back and check the iTunes date stamp on my first episode, which is, which I don't even remember, honestly. Uh, it was summertime, I'm sure. So next summer, essentially, will be the official tenure uh, of the, of the podcast itself. That's what I, that's what I thought. I, I thought it was 2009. So um, that's exciting. We'll have to do something big for that. Yeah, yeah, that will be fun. Uh, I, I hadn't. Uh, in fact, that'll be probably actually not too far from uh, from Mythmoot Six. Actually, mm. uh, that would be uh, that would be a logical place to uh, to have a celebration of that kind. Anyway, okay. So these are announcers for this week. Hope you guys are able to uh, check some of this stuff out, and I'm really hoping you guys are able to to come join us at some of our events because they are awesome. So, <clears throat> housekeeping issues. <clears throat> we have, as I mentioned, reached the penultimate episode of the season. This means, uh, as our production team is reminding us, that after next session, we're going to be talking about episode 12. Today, we're going to be talking about episode 13, the final episode of the season, next time. After that, we end, we enter the, our sort of post-production stage where we go back. So as you know, those of you who are experienced listeners will remember, we have essentially three different you know, phases of each season. Uh, you know, three different portions uh, of each some film season. The first part is the first few episodes where we're doing planning, looking for, looking, uh, you know, ahead at the, you know, deciding uh, the extent of the season and what we're going to cover and some, some sort of large groundwork. Then we begin going through episode by episode. Uh, and that's the second stage uh, of the of the season. And then the third stage, after we finish that planning, we go through and we look at some of the the work that people have produced in various subjects, right? So we we look at the 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 script outlines. We go back and review the script outlines that our script team uh, has been working on, uh, working with uh, the excellent and very high quality, and frankly, almost always spot on material that we've been giving them all the way through. And then. Um, we also, you know, look at the the, the creative work that people have done. Uh, people who uh, have have done concept art. People who do things like costume design. Uh, people su suggesting uh, set ideas, uh, locations for where that we might draw from uh, for uh, for sets for certain you know important places in the story. And of course, we're getting to a point now where that's that's going to become of sort of lasting importance we've been moving about geographically right like a lot of the 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 places that we were uh building in season one and season two are ones that we're not going to be returning to very frequently right as we're kind of done with valinor uh mostly for a while and uh you know many of the places from from season one aren't really there anymore like uh, like almarin for instance uh but now that we're you know we're beginning to build the locations uh that we're going to be engaged with for many seasons in a row now in beleriand 
we need to be thinking carefully about what do we want that to look like, right? So, uh, so the set concepts are always fun, and of course, casting. We need to be we need to be doing we need to be doing casting. Um, so, uh, anyhow, so so we've got that we've got that uh, those sessions coming up and music, right? All these things. Uh, so. One function of this is to remind folks uh, t that uh, now is the time to jump in on that. If you've been thinking about, uh, you know, uh, submitting some creative work and being involved in that process, there's uh, still time uh, to finish your work and to submit that. If there are suggestions that you want to make about, you know, sets and props and costume and, and of course, casting, um, you know, we have discussions uh, for those, you know, we have places on our discussion board for, uh, uh, for you to jump in on those discussions um we will uh we'll be getting to those within the next uh within that we'll, we'll we'll go right to uh talking about script outlines right after uh we finish episode 13 but we'll get to the uh to the other creative uh uh material um right after that so so there's still a little bit of time but it's definitely time to be thinking about it and making sure you uh you take this opportunity to be involved uh if you want to um if you want to if you want to do that, <laughs> Nick is asking if I do, do you last this time. No way, man. You guys are first. That's totally how it's going to work. Um, yeah. So just a, just a, just a reminder about that because I always love going through and looking at the work that people have done uh, for uh, for the creative stuff. All right. Let us get into our episode issues here. So the moon is going to rise. This was. Uh, okay, so we're 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 having the rising of the moon in this episode. Uh, we're thinking of the end of the episode for Maximum Adrenic Impact. That makes sense to me. My yeah, that makes sense to me. Do we think it's a good thing or a bad thing to have? A parallel that strong that is we end episode 12 with the rising of the moon and we end episode 13 with the rising of the sun um i mean that's essentially what we're setting up here if we do that um do we uh are we okay with that i don't know i I'm, think i might want to come back I'm to the fine time with it yeah uh although i, I mean it does It'd be interesting if it were a contrast in some way, but it does feel maybe a little redundant. Yeah, well, I, I just, I would, I would not want to lessen the impact of the rising of the sun. Um, well, I mean, I guess we, we'd have to see. It's going to depend upon really sort of the role that it, plays right um i guess i care more about what within the sort of dramatic economy of the episode what the rising of the heavenly body in question sort of means right in the function that it plays um i don't want us to be kind of replaying the same thing essentially you know with different lighting schemes uh, yeah, the, there's a risk that it will just be the same note with like with like slightly different uh, with a slightly different color filter. So um, exactly, and and, I mean, and and I don't mean I don't mean action wise like different stuff will be happening obviously, but I, I mean yeah. thematically. 
here's my issue. Let's think through now. What is the, what do we want to make the thematic significance of the rising of the moon and of the rising of the sun? Because obviously hope, right? We, we're, we're talking about the, 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 the bringing of hope to Middle Earth. And both of them bring hope to Middle Earth, right? But that's exactly what I want to avoid. We can't, we can't just be like, and hope arises at the end of episode 12. And more hope arises at the end of episode 13. That's like twice as hopeful as before, right? That's just not <laughs> going to have the kind of impact that, that we want. Um, so I, we got to be think carefully about how to do that. One, so, so let's kind of brainstorm for a minute here. What else is involved? Um, what else is involved in the... Um, uh, what else is involved in, in the um, rising of the sun and moon? What other themes would we want to kind of link in uh, other than the, the bringing of hope to Middle Earth and the, uh, the, you know, the intervention through the intervention of the Valar, um, the bringing of light. Now, Marielle, I agree. That's one really important thing, but that's, it's going to be tricky, right? Uh, uh, I think it'd be really tricky to convey this, at least in the context that we have here uh, at the climax of the season, is that Middle Earth is changing and will never be the same. Yeah. I mean, especially the rising of the sun, right? The rising of the sun is like the beginning of a completely new era, right? Um, and really sort of the beginning of the diminishing of the elves, which is kind of almost like the opposite of the hope message. Not exactly the opposite, not, not precisely the opposite. It's not like there's hope, but also despair. It's just, it's qualified, right? It's, it's sort of, it's sort of different. Like a new age has begun. And by the way, during this age, you know, during the ages of the sun, the firstborn will be decreasing. Uh, do we want to cut to Valinor during this period? And in the, do we know, I mean, do we want to get the the Valar sort of? Well, we did that during the last couple episodes. Like we had the making of the sun and moon, so we oh, had God, the God. Valar right. involved right. there. We could go back to them for like well, a little when we're talking commentary. About the beginning of the diminishing of the elves. Yeah, um, I was thinking that's kind of something the Valar could somehow comment on, or or point you know point to, or I don't know. It seems like they would know that, right? Yeah, they would. Um, but I, I don't know. See, the, hard, the thing I have a hard time with is that... I mean, I agree, Karita, that there's a bittersweetness to the rising of the sun, right? We've got the, you know, as Karita okay. says, the unveiling of the, you know, sort of the glory and, and the, the flowering of things. And, you know, there can be... And not only that, but the intimidation of Morgoth and the terror that it's that it brings to his creatures. Um, but at the same time, it, it is also a sign of the 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 begin the rise of the age of men and the fading of the firstborn. So it's definitely bittersweet. I guess I'm just not sold on the fact that bittersweet is the note I necessarily want to end on. I mean, I guess you could say what kind of namby-pamby Silmarillion uh, showrunner am I that if I don't like bittersweet, like if I don't like bittersweet, I'm running the wrong show, right? Uh, because that's a very Silmarillion thing. Uh, but yeah, Mar Marielle, that's exactly what I'm thinking. My problem is um, 
it's bittersweet in retrospect, but not immediately, right? The, the, the impact of the first rising of the sun shouldn't be, and now all the elves are doomed, right? That's not the effect of the rising of the sun. That is, like, in retrospect, looking back, they will, they will recognize that this was the beginning of the change of the era, right? Um, and we can have them wondering, like, what it means and, and, and even have somebody say, like, not even just from Valinor, but have some of the elves say, um, you know, a new age of the world has begun. Um, well, I mean, I can see the elves being hopeful. I mean, they don't know. They didn't hear the music, but the Valar did hear the music. Right, and right. that's kind of why I was thinking the Valar would know, but they certainly, I mean, I can't imagine the Valar would have been telling the, the, the elves, you know, well, you know, a day will come when you're going to diminish. You know, I mean, I don't necessarily know the elves would know that right. other than the Vanya maybe. But anyway, I, right. I, that's what I was thinking, you know, that you could have both in juxtaposition, you know, that I, I think that's probably more Tolkien-ish than anything. It, like, I guess that's the bittersweet piece, which is right, right. in everything good, there's also sort of a downside, you know? Um, well, the other challenge is how do you communicate the foreboding to like, you know, uh, 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 an audience that probably won't see the payoff of that for like 10 yeah, that's seasons. True. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Good yeah. point. We'd have to remind them of it. Oh, there's the sun. It's ten seasons from now, the elves are going to be diminishing. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe we don't do that. It's, maybe it's kind of, a little bit too nuanced. We can send them. Like, it's okay, I think, to send that message. Like, a new age has begun, and we have no right. idea what it what it right. brings. Yeah. You know, like uh, somebody can have a sort of a foreboding that it. You know, like the primary response can be hope, relief, you know, uh, perhaps we are not alone. Maybe we have a chance in our fight against the darkness. Um, well, but you could have, you could have one of the elf heroes say a new age has begun. And then you cut to Manway turning to Varda going, a new age has begun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. We can give hints that it's not going to be like, this is not an unqualified good, that, that there is something bittersweet. We don't have to explain what the no, bittersweetness is. Right, right. Um, but, but yeah, yeah. Um, the more I think that will be, that would be doable if, if, um, if we somehow, if we have individual characters you know, have sort of a mixed reaction to it and maybe say some things that, that point in the direction that this is, this is, this has consequences that are mostly good, but, but also some bittersweet. And maybe some of the evil characters, or not, not necessarily evil characters, but like some of the more questionable characters, even like us, like Sons of Feanor type characters, look at the sun right. and kind of wonder sort of, you know, at the, the, like, like, you know, uh, because because if there's one thing that's clear about it, it's a sign that like the Valinor that the Valar um, uh, are watching, right? And right. so for people who people who maybe want to hide their deeds, um, having the sun is, is not necessarily a good thing. So good thing. I, I think that should be doable. The question is, what do we do with the moon that's different? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean. I agree. I, I do think that that element of the sun is doable. Oh, by the way, one other side note. So remember how in the published Silmarillion in the in the the making of the sun and moon business, they have the thing where they like the sun and the moon are up, and the original schedule of the sun and moon means that like 
one of them is always in the sky and then some of the Valar complain and they're like, nobody can see the stars anymore. And dark, you know, like, uh, you know, darkness, uh, like the twilight is driven from the earth entirely. Can we change the schedule please? And still get some darkness <laughs> occasionally. And so they like uh, reprogram the sun and moon to like rise and set differently and everything and set up the current system. <clears throat> I'm keen to cut that. <laughs> I, I don't think we should do that at all. Uh, I, I just, yeah, I, 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 I don't think we, I don't, I don't think we do that. Yeah, I'm with you. You don't I'm want the you. boardroom scene where they're discussing how long yeah, the right. day should be. Right, like the people, like the 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 Valar griping about how the other people planned it poorly. Like this was poorly conceived. Like I, you know, I, yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I yeah, I don't think. I don't think we go there. You know, I to harken back to my thing about, you know, the Valar sort of being worried about this. It, it, the Valar, I think, from this point forward are going to be kind of wet blankets. Um, you know, to in the view in I know that there I know that there are many Tolkien fans, Silmarillion fans who consider the Valar wet blankets already. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. But, you know, if you think about seen from the viewpoint of like elves and men, a lot of their decisions and a lot of their actions are kind of like, really, dude? I mean, you're doing that? You like you care about us and that's what you're doing? So, I mean, I just was thinking this could be the start of that appearance of mm -hmm. the Valor becoming wet blankets. I don't know. Anyway, right. just. Right. Well, the when we did the last debate of the Valar that we showed, the one in which they decided to do the hiding of Valinor and uh but also to do the sun and moon. And um, you know, we had Olmo and 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 others, you know, voice the opinion that like they were fixing to stay involved with what's going on and you know that they're not going to turn their backs on on the people of Middle Earth. Uh, Almost especially like I don't care what any of y'all say I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do anyway so <clears throat> uh, and then he leaves um, anyway so <clears throat> uh, so yeah Mario I think it would be kind of interesting if some of the if basically there are some of the Eldar who take the rising of the sun and moon as a sign essentially that the Valar are coming right um, like this is the preamble to the great triumphant uh, return of the of the 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 Valar to Middle Earth to chain Melkor again. Like surely they're going to come and take care of this problem, right? Surely they see that this is a problem. They see what's going on here. Um, they're going to come and take care of this. And we know they're not not paying attention, right? You know, we we know they have their eyes on us because look, they made the sun and the moon, right? There they are. So they're obviously paying attention. They obviously care. So any day they're totally coming. Any day they're coming, right? Um, I, I think that that would be a very sensible thing for yeah, some of the elves to say. Uh, and then to have people be asking, because I, I think we should have people have other voices who are saying they don't want the Valar to come. I, some of the, the Sons of Feanor certainly, I think, would say this. Um, <laughs> or saying that, like, they don't believe the Valar are going to come. And then, of course, as time goes on and the Valar don't come, then what do people say and how do people uh, sort right. of handle that in the in the circumstances but that whole thing seems to me like a season four issue essentially um uh something contemplated after the because we're we're talking about the sun rising in the final you know 15 minutes of the season oh, so true. Yeah. 
So the we won't get anything other reaction. than the initial reaction when yeah. the sun rises, right? Yeah. So um, it's more like um, it, that. That's more like the further consequences of the rising of the sun, or you know, like conclusions that can be drawn uh, after the rising of the sun. Um, which again, I said that seems to me like part of the whole that it would be a significant contribution really to the whole sort of psychological and political situation in season four during the during the 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 leaguer of Angband, right um like what does everybody think that they're doing and why right. <laughs> and right. one of the answers to that can be holding on until the valar come which they're totally going to do any day now right um <laughs> that that makes that makes sense to me um but yeah but like i said that would be a that would be a season four issue um cool all right so we didn't talk about but i kind of diverted us about how do we make the moon right we, the moon yeah. and sun different yeah okay right. so yeah all right well one thing the sun one obvious difference between the moon and the sun. And by the way, isn't it kind of fun that we're sitting here like, okay, we got to rack our brains and brain. Like, what is the difference between the moon and the sun? Like, I just, I don't see any difference between the moon and sun. Um, it's just kind of a fun conversation to be having. But anyway, um, one of the obvious differences between the moon and the sun is that it's the sun that brings terror to the creatures of Morgoth, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in fact, wouldn't it be lovely to have a whole bunch of trolls turning to stone when the sun rises? <laughs> Awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We have so to. We have. For sure. We have. We we need to have an army in the field somewhere, right? Or at least troops out somewhere, uh, uh, even if they're just watching the the camps of the Feanorians or 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 uh, or the followers of Fingolfin. And so the sun rises. Bunches of trolls turn into stone. Orcs scream and and cower and run in terror. So like the the armies of Morgoth should be just scattered when the sun comes up, the moon is not going to have that same effect, right? So on the one hand, we do have a difference of degree, obviously, uh, between the sun and moon in this way. Um, if the moon is a, a sort of a promise of hope, the sun is in a sense delivering on that promise, right? And not fully, it's not the arrival of the Valar, but but it's, it's definitely um, a bigger deal. Um, mm -hmm. Nick is pointing out we haven't yet done any trolls yeah, at we all. We haven't done trolls well, yet. No, it's time. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> then the script team needs to go back and write in some trolls somewhere. Well, they can always be in the background. You know, yeah, can always be in the background. They don't have to be featured, right? Yeah, yeah, they don't have to be featured. Um, we don't even. Uh, we don't even have to explain what they are, or where they come from. Uh, the trolls, of course, are made in mockery of Ents, and we have Ents going on. So the idea that Morgoth in his R&D department has already seen the Ents, right, knows about the existence of the Ents and has already been experimenting with that. Um, uh, I think it's so yet... Marie says there can be trolls at the parley in this episode. Yeah, I like that, Marie. And and we can comment on the fact that they're new, right? No one's ever seen them before. Um, and it's that's actually kind of fun to see Morgoth like already responding to the R and D challenge of the utter defeat of the orc armies at the beginning, right? When the when the Feanorians arrive, like it's already clear something more has to be done. So the trolls <clears throat> would be like the first upgrade of uh, of his. Uh, 
of his armies. So interesting to see like some of the proto trolls uh, there uh, already evidenced uh, at the beginning there. And then we have, uh, you know, we can see the proto trolls uh, turning into stone. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think, see, see, look at that. There's no time like the present to introduce trolls. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, um, because, yeah, the, the, the rising of the sun is, is a direct strike against Morgoth in a way that the rising of the moon isn't. Um, <clears throat> it's still, the rising of the moon is is intimidating. It's dramatic. Um, but it's, um, it's not... Uh, it's it's just not the same kind of effect. Um, yeah, Marilyn is asking, does the moon bother evil creatures other than Gollum? Um, not like the sun. I mean, there's no evidence, for instance, that the orcs who don't want to be out in the sunlight care whether the moon is up. Um, I don't recall them referring to the moon at all in the in the same way that they that they talk about the sun. I mean, you'll remember. The orcs in the Orakai chapter talking about like you know wh what are we going to do when the sun rises right nobody asks about what's going to happen if the moon rises so it just just doesn't seem to be the same issue for them. I could see that when it first appears they would be cautious right you yeah could see them sort of being cautious. It would be scary but sun. yeah it's it's more of a what is this thing and what does this mean kind of thing yeah but right. it's not a like you know like Wicked Witch of the West kind of situation, you know. Right. Uh, I mean, they sort of put a toe out and then they sort of look around the corner and it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, it's all right. It's safe. Come on out. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. So, so I think that's fine. I, I, that, you know, that's, so what does that suggest then? Does that suggest that the moon then is the sign of hope? But okay, but let's let's uh, let's think in more detail about that. Hope for what exactly? Like we say hope, right? But hope isn't a just a an emotion, right? Hope isn't isn't just a feeling that you have. I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't a feeling called that you could call hope, like a general feeling of optimism that things are probably going to turn out well. But that's not hope in the Tolkien sense of hope. Um, you know, that's not, that's not, that's certainly not Estelle. Um, your hope has to be in, so hope, hope in the Estelle sense is hope that is very connected to faith. It's connected to belief um, in something. Uh, exactly, Marie, that's Amdir, not Estelle. Um, the, just the general feeling that things are going to turn out well, that's Amdir. Uh, Estelle, the high hope, uh, is, uh, that's why, uh, Gil Estelle, the star of high hope, um, that when Eärendil's star rises for the first time, it's called Gil Estelle, the, the star of high hope, not because it makes them feel like cheerful and optimistic who see it, but rather it is a sign of hope. Like it gives them something to believe in, right? We have a re seeing that star rise, we have a reason to believe that things are going to turn, right? This is this is a sign of things to come. I gotta think the rising of the moon would be that kind of sign, which means sign of what exactly? Hope how? Hope for what? And you know, so Dave, I come back to the suggest, you know, to to the, what we we're saying before about 
the Valar coming, right? I mean, if the if it's a sign of the intervention of it's if it's taken as a sign of the intervention of the the imminent intervention of the Valar, well, that's not really a sign of hope to the Feanorians. They're not going to want that, are they? Wouldn't they be anti-intervention of the Valar at this point? Or would they? Feanor himself certainly would be, but of course he's dead. Um, well, the sons don't stray that um, far from the father, do they? I mean, I would think they also would be anti-intervention. Yeah, at least that, uh, that's an interesting point. Well, I mean, don't the Valar also sort of, uh, don't they sort of pose some kind of a threat to the oath? Meaning, you know, if the Val, if the Val, Valar get into a hold of a Silmarillion, anyway, I'm right. Yeah, sort of uh, talking of the loud Silmarillion. Here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Somewhere. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's hard because, of course, we know that's what's going to happen, right? I mean, we know right. that the the ultimate intervention, uh, you know, from the West is going to bring about the sort of the final crisis of the oath, right? It's not necessarily clear to me that that would be obvious to the Feanorians from the from the get go, that that's the situation that would that would be. Um, well, I would be thinking that they'd be afraid. Geez, what happens if a Vala gets and gets a hold of a Silmaril, and I have this oath? <laughs> right. I mean, that's you know, to me, that would be a much more you know, that would be kind of be where their heads were at. It's like we don't want the Valar to get in hold of the Silmarils because our oath is going to be screwed if that happens. Right. Well, but at least <laughs> some of them, right? At least some of them would probably be be thinking, well, but surely if the Valar, they'd give them back to us, right? I mean, obviously they'd give them oh, back. Obviously, the Valar true. wouldn't withhold them from us, right? No, they wouldn't do that. Whereas some of them, like the Kurofins of the world, would probably be like, I wouldn't trust those Valar as far as That's I can chuck them, right? They're yeah. totally going to keep it for themselves, so we yeah. can't let them have it. Whereas, I mean, after, after what they did to us, right? After they right. banished us and they treated us so badly, right? That was, I mean, that's to me what they would be thinking. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, if they're, they've convinced themselves that they're like mm -hmm. ill done by in the whole exactly. situation, then right. they could just, there's also could be just like simple resentment, right? Like, Oh, now you're going to come in and help. Right. Fine. Right. Well, we don't need you. We're doing it on our own. Right. That's um, right. you know, I don't really know. Um, uh, yeah. Um, well, Marie, the Valar are specifically named in the oath as people from whom they will not accept the withholding of the, like, so like not even a Valar, if they try to withhold a Silmaril, that will not be tolerated, right? Even if it's one of the Valar. But again, it's still premised upon the Valar withholding the Silmarils right. um, from the Sons of Feanor. Because remember, that's what's ultimately going to happen, right? You know, in the, in the War of Wrath, Mithros and Magor are going to be like, okay, uh, please give us the Silmarils, right? That's what's going to happen now. And they're going to say no. And the reason they say no is because of their many their, 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 their many lawless deeds, right? right. Um, it's like, hey, no, like three kinslayings, three strikes, you're out, buddy. You are not getting the Silmarils, right? Um, that does not necessarily prove to me that the Valar wouldn't give them to the sons of Feanor if they actually were to show up right now. Um, 
you know, who knows? Um, so, but Marie, exactly. So the question becomes, do you trust him? Do you trust him to give you the, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the question of would they have given them in fact at this point is a, a purely theoretical one. The practical one is to what extent do the, do the sons of Feanor trust the Valar to hand them over? Um, and I would think that this would probably fall right along party lines, right? I would expect Maglor and Mithros um, uh, and possibly Amros, although I'd actually I kind of expect Amros to maybe abstain from this vote, but I'd expect Maglor and, 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 and Mithros to, to be willing to assume that the Valar would do the right thing here. And uh, the three darker brothers, Kurufin, Kelegorm, and Karanthir, uh, to be more cynical about it. Um, Hey Corey, um, yeah, I'm wondering if the I'm wondering if the trick with the sun and the moon here is is to um, is to show in, show individual characters reacting to each, um, and maybe don't same don't show the same characters responding to each of them. So like maybe the the moon um, maybe with the moon maybe the moon could be predominantly um, like Fingolfin's host and yeah. maybe Kirden. Um, and folks yeah. like that, and yeah. then the sun would be more like um, Feanor's sons and Morgoth's forces. And Morgoth's folks, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, that would enable us to avoid the risk of duplication. I mean, we certainly don't want us to put in a, put ourselves in a position of like having to say to the actors, okay, the moon is rising. Uh, do a shocked and surprised face. Okay, now the sun is rising. Do an even more shocked and surprised face. Like, you know, uh, yeah. So just having different people responding uh, in different circumstances would make that a little bit easier. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, th that makes sense to me. Um, I could see us having, well... I don't know that there's time for it. I don't know that there's time for a Feanorian discussion. No, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know that there is, um, there was not time to hit my mute button before I sneezed. Um, I don't know that there is time. There's not time to have a Feanorian discussion after the moon, after the sun rises, because the sun isn't going to rise until Mithras is already stapled to the cliffside, isn't he? Uh, so he's going to be out of that discussion already. Um, so Mithros's response to this rising of the sun will be in an entirely different context. It will be like while he is nailed to the cliff. Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, so there's no question of like calmly talking that over with his brothers, at least not now. He could do that later in season four, um, as part of the whole context of, everybody has discussions about what is happening now and what should happen next and who should do it. Well, uh, sunburn. <laughs> is, is that part of my, the rest of the Poor guy's getting I burned to a I think not, right? I mean, yeah, it'd be hard to imagine, you know, It'd be hard to imagine Fingolfin with like a, a you know peeling nose or something. You know, like wouldn't they wouldn't they be immune to, to to sunburn just like they're immune to disease? I would think so. I would think so. And that might be uh, part of the you know 
to, but maybe that's along with death, what men consider to be like punishment is that they get yeah. sunburned. Yeah. <laughs> See, yeah. you missed me, didn't you? Y'all missed me. Sunburned. <laughs> Marie says that Mythros is redheaded, so of course he gets sunburned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so the more I think about this idea of um, doing kind of uh, 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 sort of staggered responses, the more I like it. Because, like, looking at the text again, that's kind of how it's described, right? Right. Um, um, Isil's wrought first and rose uh, first rose into the realm of stars and was the elder of the lights. The servants of Morgoth were filled with amazement, but the elves looked up in delight, and even as the moon rose above the darkness in the west, Fingolfin let blow his silver trumpets and began his march into Middle-earth. So I think the, like, maybe if we, like, really focus on Fingolfin yeah. for the rising yes. of the moon. And then when when uh, when um, Anar rises in glory, um, oh, 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 one other thing. Um that uh, one other thing that's interesting is the note about um, many things stirring and waking that had waited long in the sleep of Yavanna. Yeah, we've so, ditched the sleep uh, of Yavanna. No, <laughs> oh, you're right. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> but I, 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 during the discussion of the cutting of the sleep of Yavanna, I did say that we could have, we can still have a pronounced visual. Like there can be. A, a a definite renewal of I would love to associate the rising of the sun with the opening of flowers, for instance. That's what I, I mean, was thinking. I think yeah. The, the just not only to take advantage shamelessly of like our full color palette now that we finally have one after three entire seasons, but um, but just to just to sort of show Middle Earth the land of Middle Earth responding to the sun, right? I mean, I do think that we still want to convey that. And that's, of course, one way, incidentally, in which we indirectly convey the whole bittersweetness, the whole, like, a new age has come, right? The sun affects Middle-earth differently. Middle-earth responds differently. Uh, it's yeah. now like an actual different climate for the first for the yeah. firstborn. They're going to be fading in it. Um, I am. Um, so, so, yeah, I kind of, the more I think about this, the more I wonder if, like, maybe the moon, we do mostly elf character uh, reactions and maybe focus right. on the golf and so and then the sun we really focus on Morgoth and like the terror that instills in him what if we have no commentary at all to the, what if that's just the end that is the sun rises and we see the flowers come and life bloom and the 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 and the foes of you know, the the servants of Morgoth running away and turning to st and or turning to stone. Um, uh, Are we not going to have a big golf march? You like catastrophe. Well, no, that that's for the moon. That's for the moon. I'm oh, talking about the, the sun. I'm sorry, sun. Yeah, sun. yeah. I'm the sun. I get the two confused. Yeah. Well, we'll think about that. That's a that's an episode thirteen uh, uh, issue. We don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to do everything in one day. Um, Kick the but, down the road. So to speak. But yes, the the exactly we just have to kick the can just a little bit on that one. Um, but it certainly this sets us up to be able to have different reactions and to put it into kind of a different context. Um, yeah. And I certainly would want to emphasize. I mean, to me, the rising of the sun has always been about the march of Fingolfin. I mean, like you know, I associate Fingolfin with the moon. You the know, idea of flowers strong. blooming and trolls turning to stone simultaneously is yes it would be an awesome visual. Yes. Yes. 
flowers writhing and uh, uh, rising and wreath wreathing around the statues of the, the trolls. statues of trolls. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. To show at the very end, like the statue of a troll, like with flowers growing on it. Yeah, yeah that would be, that with morning glories. Better yet, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be fun. Phil was thinking the same thing I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so. Um, so let's go back to our, our slide here. Um, thinking about the, the arrival of the host. Of, so that was our whole discussion of the first sentence of the first slide. So doing well. Um, <laughs> so I, definitely the rising of the moon coordinated with the arrival of the host of Fingolfin. Um, so we do see the light revealing the lands opening up before them. One of the visual images that I really insist on is the moonlight, like the light of the newly risen moon shining on the silver trumpets of Fingolfin as he, like, I, I would like him personally to be blowing a trumpet, uh, you know, to, to, to show him lifting a, a, a horn to his lips and blowing it. Um, uh, that would be, uh, that would be really really cool i really i really want that um now as for the tide issue uh i'm not sold on the tide issue i mean i get that there would be tides for the first time but i've got two issues i got two problems here first of all i think if we do too much with tides we're trying to have it both ways. That is, we are trying on the one hand to make dramatic use of real world astronomical effects, while at the same time, we're trying to say we're living in a flat universe and the moon goes through a tunnel underneath the earth, right? It's like, which way are we gonna have it, people? Because I'm not sure we can have it both ways there. Um, if we want to make it a myth of explanation in the modern astronaut, in the modern astronomical sense, um, you know, like, and now we introduce tides because we've introduced a new heavenly body in gravitational uh, orbit around the, the, the earth or whatever, then I don't, I mean, then I don't, it's, it makes it really hard to cling to the much more abstractly and unrealistically mythical concept of the flat earth, uh, which is orbited in this kind of, mechanical way by a, you know, a two people driving chariots of the sun and moon and going underneath the earth and through physical gates of night. So, um, you know, actually, it's a really good point. I mean, you know, what we could do is like tides could accompany the drowning of Numenor and the bending of the, you know, the rounding of the earth. Yeah. I mean, later. I kind of, Right. I kind of feel like the less we invite people to think about the larger astronomical and gravitational situation of the world, the better, as far as yeah. this is concerned. Like, let us let us make vague acknowledgement of the fact that the world is still flat and then not talk about it anymore. Because if we do, we're going to get ourselves into a heap of trouble. And frankly, this is one of the reasons why Tolkien... Uh, in his later years, and not even super late years, like Tolkien in the decade after he wrote The Lord of the Rings was saying, I got to go back and ditch the flat earth thing because it doesn't work. Like I've got to, I've got to, and, and I, you know, one of the reasons for that, I believe, is that he was in, in the post Lord of the Rings world, 
he was approaching the Silmarillion differently because he'd done more consistent world building, not just myth writing, but real world building um, in writing this consistent story and integrating the early myths with it. And so in order to make the whole thing work, he was like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go out and come back in again on this whole flat earth thing. Um, so, so I take it, um, yeah. I take it, Corey, that you're not in favor of a scene where the um, the Valar are sitting around like a a little model of the solar system, and then plotting out uh, <laughs> Tillian's course, sort of plotting this elliptical this elliptical trajectory around the Earth. Right. And the tunnel, right? We need somebody, we, we need like a punch <laughs> clock, you know, at the tunnel that they go under and show Tillian punching in as he comes in. And, the, you know, somebody standing guard at the gates of night to open them and let them through on the other side, you know, the gates of dawn. Um, yeah. For some reason, that makes me think of the sheepdog and the coyote. I got to say... I, yeah, that's exactly the tone we, we want to go for. We go want, for yeah, exactly. That's just it. And, and actually, I got to say, I know, so I'm with you on the ties, but I got to say, I had this great idea reading Nick's note. You know, Nick's idea had been that Fingolfin's host get to the end of the Helcarax and find its way blocked by water. And I thought, right. well, here we go. Controver we'll set up controversy. We'll get loads of PR, lots of great <laughs> rating. We have Fingolfin part the waters. <laughs> right? That would just create, oh my God. We would get so much press. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, yeah. Uh. Wow. Do I have to say no to that? Yes, Nick. <laughs> um, yeah. He could do it with his trumpet, you know, do it with the horn and the water part. I mean, I'm just so all he's like Moses water. and Joshua at the and same Joshua. time. Exactly. Oh my God. <laughs> Viewers would love it. Are you kidding? We would get endorsed by so many religious organizations, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So. <laughs> I see now, next time, Dave's next time I'm not here, Dave's gonna say I have good news. Trish is not with us. <laughs> <laughs> Never. I still, I still like the I still like the All right, no, let me let me be a little less definite about that. I still don't dislike the like blocked by water and then the water goes out thing. I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to explain oh, right, right. it. Um, yeah. But here's the other thing. Remember that in like the last episode, we had we had Omo like saying, "I'm gonna go help the people in Middle Earth, and I don't care what y'all do." Like we had we had basically Omo drop the mic and walk out of the Valar meeting, explaining <laughs> that he's fully intending uh, to help the folks. So I kind of like a water related deliverance uh, here for Omo really. Ooh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's true. Could, um, I mean, do we get really overt about it and show Olmo kind of doing something or just not even that? I mean, imply uh, that it's actually Olmo or one of his minions. Yeah, I think we can kind of we can kind of leave it open or even just have, have somebody comment on it. Like, uh, you know, one of the elves could, like Turgon. Turgon oh, could say something about go. it, right? Um, or even Finrod. Um, uh, 
Yeah, or and or just be indirect and play almost theme in the background as Marielle suggests. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So just uh, uh, to to have. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of torn about it because on the one hand, we don't necessarily want to convey that this is necessarily a miraculous parting of the water, you know, like a, like a, a Moses kind of caliber miracle, right? At the same time, I can't help but think that it's just going to be a little bit weird for people to be like, tides, what are these tides? I mean, I, again, I just... I really can't imagine that in a flat world universe like Tolkien is imagining, the moon actually is even going to be connected with tides at all, right? I mean, like, it's a, this is just to me, it's like an apples and oranges kind of thing. It's, it's, I'm not exactly okay with the moon being driven like, as a chariot that goes through a tunnel underneath the flat earth and having it be associated with tides, you know, it's just, I, I, uh, and I know that you can do the scene without saying the word tides, Murray, but, but again, it's, wouldn't it make the, or the elves look a little dorky if they come to this and they're like, oh, at some parts of the day, the water is just going, it's like the water level is going out. Maybe it will come back in again later on. And I'd be like, Oh wow, boy, these people are a, bunch of sharp instruments right you know i mean it it's like yeah you never noticed this before or then if they didn't then we have to say that this is new and I, that's that, that's my concern that's my concern um um so i you know um uh either we make them clueless either we make them look clueless or we are saying that this is new and coinciding with the moon, in which case we invite lots of speculation, which I, uh, lots of conversation, which I think is not productive. So I, at the end of the day, I'm not sure. I kind of think we do without the water thing and the t we, I don't think we make any allusion to tides at all. And I think even though I kind of like the Olmo connection, I think I would ditch the water thing entirely just having them arriving at last is kind of dramatic enough, right? Especially when that is then augmented by the rising of the moon. So you have, we talk about reaction shots, right? We have their first reaction shot, which is to like, they see the land, right? The land is, the land is, you know, they're, 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 they're about to, you know, they come around the last iceberg and there's the land in front of them. They're, they've come to the end of the Helcaraxa and then Fingolfin steps out onto the land at the front of the line and as soon as he does, the moon rises, right? And that's really dramatic, right? And then he blows his horn. And so we've got the reaction to we're finally, uh, we're finally over this horrible ice crossing and the moon has risen and the light has burst in the sky. I mean, there's plenty there, right? There's plenty there. That's, that's, a, that, that's a great moment in itself without having to introduce another obstacle to be overcome uh, and inviting sort of, distracting from that with dubious scientific speculations, I think. So, so yeah, so let's, let's, I say, let's, let's simplify that. Um, now I love the suggestion, however, the, about moonlight revealing the camp of the Feanorians to Kierden. Uh, we'll come back to Kierden, 
but let me just say, I, I, I do want to be thinking about what else is going on at the same time that the moon rises, right? Um, uh, and I do think it would be okay for some, uh, like spiders in particular, to be upset by the moon. Um, orcs and trolls, I think we're, we're going to save that. But we could have some some negative reactions, but I want to, I want to mostly keep the, the reactions to the moon to, to the elves. Um, yeah, I'll come back to Kierden. We'll come back to Kierden, but I do want to think about how the timing of the rising of the moon fits into those other storylines. Uh, again, the primary emphasis, the viewers will be introduced to the moon in the company of Fingolfin, clearly. Um, but, I think, uh, but obviously we do need to think of, we can, we can bring it in in different, in different places. Ooh, the werewolves, Hakan. Oh, you've got it. Absolutely. We totally have to have the werewolves responding to the moon. Right? Oh, oh my gosh. We can't not do that. Oh yeah. How and a great howling went moon? up. A great howling goes up. Yes. Yes, exactly. Oh, absolutely. Oh, the werewolves. That is brilliant, Hakan. Absolutely brilliant. Yep. Yep. Um, okay, cool. <clears throat> Actually, you know, going. the howling of the werewolves could be the thing that gets people's attention. You know, like they may even feel it before anybody actually sees it. It's like, what's all that about? Like, oh my God, what is that thing? <laughs> what f the moon has to be a full moon when it rises the first time, right? Because oh, yeah. it would be really anticlimactic if, if it rose for the first time as a crescent. Uh, <laughs> what is that little thing up did the sky exactly. break open that's <laughs> different but kind of weird and not very bright does anyone notice a difference in the light not that much actually yeah no it has to be a big old huge full moon but yeah. uh yeah yeah um yeah yeah. Oh, yeah. Nick, I, I agree. Having the having the werewolves driven mad by the moon right. would be awesome. That would just be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. They should. They should. They should. They should howl and run crazy uh, when the moon rises. That would be. That would be awesome. Okay. Okay. Mytheros is parley. This is the major event. I'm mean, okay. It's the rising of the sun. A rising sun and moon really important. Uh, but Mytheros is parley is the big event. So let's think this through because this is there's there, there's some tricky elements to this. Okay. At the end of episode eleven, some emissary or other can come to the camp of Feanor to invite them to parley, offering a Silmaril. The brothers conceal Feanor's death. I agree. They don't want to. They're sort of embarrassed. <laughs> okay, they're not, they're not embarrassed. <laughs> They want they they want to want to play things a little close to the vest, right? Uh, so that's fine. Um, I, who comes? So here's here's tricky thing number one. Tricky thing number one is the parley. So the characters as we have described them, right? The, that is the characters of the bad guys as we have developed them. The parley. This is this has Sauron's fingerprints all over it, right? This is totally a Sauron kind of stratagem. This is not a Gothmog kind of stratagem. The parley. So clearly, clearly, Sauron has to have his hand in this whole parley thing. And yet, the text explicitly says there are Balrogs there. So how do we handle this from a bad guy point of view? We don't necessarily have to show it backstage with the bad guys before it happens, right? It's not like we have to, you know, join the, uh, join the, 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 
you know, strategy meeting where the bad guys decide to do the parley betrayal, right? So we don't have to do that. Um, I think it would be cool if it's Thurin Gwethel who shows up uh, and makes the offer, but actually it's, I hadn't thought of it being Sauron himself. That would be really interesting. Um, it would be a really cool foreshadowing of, you know, Anatar for Sauron to come up to, to show, you know, uh, uh, declaring peace and offering gifts. Right. Um, I mean, there's some mileage we could get out of that, you know, setting up that as a parallel here. Right. Um, Gothmog himself can't be one of the Balrogs, I would think, because he wouldn't participate in this, but we could have, I guess the story that we would have to be is that this would be Sauron's idea. He would be obviously in charge of it, including setting it up himself. He would be there springing the trap, but we'd have to be imagining, I guess, that that Morgoth basically strong-armed Gothmog into sending some of the Balrogs to, uh, you know, to just like as muscle, essentially, uh, to the parley. Um, ooh, Phil is wondering if Sauron could organize a proper parley and the Balrogs bust in and ruin things. Uh, that's a tempting kind of idea. I mean, I got to think that the whole double crossing uh, thing has got to be Sauron from the get-go, really. But... Um, Hakan is suggesting maybe Thorin Gwethel is the first messenger and Sauron being the centerpiece of the parley itself. Um, I could see either one. I just kind of like that image of Sauron himself coming in among the elves in their camp, right? Offering them gifts um, because of the, the, the parallels. Um, I really like that. Um, and yeah, he absolutely, Nick, should be glitzed out. Yeah, he should look awesome. He should look resplendent when he comes. Um, yes, Marie. Marie points out that, of course, Celebrimbor is in the Feanorian camp right now. That means we have to be a little careful about that parallel, right? Uh, we, can't, we can't blow it entirely. Good point. It can't it probably can't be Sauron in his in his final Anatar form. Right, exactly. Haven't I yeah, seen you uh, several millennia ago? Like you look vaguely familiar. Have we met before? No. no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I'm just here offering gifts in a completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, forthright way. Um, Something about this situation seems familiar. No, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, that's actually that's actually not a bad argument for having the first message be delivered by Thorn and Gwethel, but then have Sauron show up as the bearer of gifts at the parley, because then Celebrimbor wouldn't see him. Um, yeah, boy, talk about like you know. Or what if we just make Celebrimbor not be there? No, nah, we'd have to give him an. Ex I mean, where's he gonna go? You know, I mean, like there's, yeah, not, right. there's, there's, there's not many places. True. Now yeah. we now we have to go out of our way to explain that he's not there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It doesn't seem <laughs> worth. 
which will, which will not make any sense to the viewer. Like, oh, uh, this is Calabrimbor, and just so you know, he's not at the meeting. He's totally not here. Him. Yeah, exactly. And you'll find out why in about twelve years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's. <laughs> Probably not worth it, but boy, yeah, this is this is you know talk about like uh, you know immortal character problems, right? You know, like it's just not uh, uh, you've you've really got to play the long game when you're plotting out um, you know these kinds of plot devices with uh, uh, with elves. Um, okay, yeah, so let's have Thoringwethel show up so that we don't we don't have to worry about Kellebrimbor's uh, uh, recognition, and then we have. Um, that we could throw in a couple Easter egg lines, right? I mean, Celebrimbor <laughs> could be in favor uh, of the of the parley. Uh, but anyway, um, I I uh, so then we get um, we get Sauron at the parley. Hakan, it, you're right. Maybe instead of being the resplendent Lord of Gifts, the move that Sauron would make would be cornered and beaten opponent, right? So he would come like in contrition as a representative, faked obviously, but uh, that, cause that was the angle that Sauron was, that Mor uh, Morgoth rather was taking in the, in the parley, right? Um, we've lost and, and we're, we're, we're offering terms of peace, right? Because you've beaten us. Um, Nick asks, is it safe for Thorin Gwethel to show up at the Feanorian's camp by herself? Uh, as she is an emissary, honorable people would never just kill an emissary. Uh, they would send her back with a, with a return message and guarantee her safety. But of course, I can't forget the shocking moment in the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1, when the Valar did exactly that, when Morgoth sends an emissary and they kill him. Uh, and Christopher Tolkien is kind of shocked by this in his commentary. He's like, this appalling behavior by the Valar is totally unexplained. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Marie, yeah, Marie is thinking that it, uh, she likes the idea of Celebrimbor supporting uh, the Parley and that it could be the first time that Celebrimbor ever uh, uh, gain says his father, right? That he disagrees from Kurufin. Uh, and uh, and so we, we begin to see a little bit of a rift there between Kurufin and Celebrimbor. That would be interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, besides which, Thorin Gwethel doesn't exactly need to offer herself into their power fully either. I mean, but... But whatever, I, I I would think it would be it would be a risk they'd be worth they'd be worth taking. And I I, I hear you, Nick, that of course the Fanorians are not exactly necessarily the most honorable of foes anyway. But but I would think that Mytheros would would stick at this. I don't think that he would just execute the messenger, especially since he's pro parley, right? So how are you going to be pro parley and be like, but I'm not even going to let them know, right? He would want to send the message back. Um. Yeah. So. But let's get to the the sort of the bigger question here. Why does only Mithros go to meet Morgoth's representative? So why do we say yes in the first place to the parley? Um, and 
why is it only Mithros who goes? And how does that discussion go in advance? Who's in favor of the parley? Who's not in favor of the parley? And why? And whose idea is it that Mithros goes alone? Um, I kind of like the idea of... <clears throat> I like the idea of Mithros sort of doing it self-sacrificially. Like, all right, you guys, I think this is a trap. You guys stay behind, I'll go. But then that doesn't... There doesn't seem to be. There's basically no good reason for him to walk into the trap. Like, what is he expecting to gain? Yeah. Uh, um. Unless, unless Morgoth uh, is feigning to offer a Silmaril. He is. He's feigning to offer a Silmaril. The question is, do they believe him? Right. Yeah. Um. I mean. Well, the I wonder if. I wonder if maybe one, like one or more of the sons, like Mydros, is like feels like it's an opportunity they can't they can't afford to turn down we have to right. you know, we have to we have to take this I, I wonder if maybe the oath compels them to take this opportunity to, to get a silmaril yeah yeah if there's a silmaril yeah. and, it, and it can be had somebody we, has to go check it out right right yeah, the, the the oath won't let them say no to a silmaril but see I don't know I'm a little I'm a little dubious about that though because it's not the oath is going to be satisfied with the return of one Silmaril, right? Um, uh, I, I mean, no, he's, okay, that's right. he's got a... Uh, Mariel is suggesting he could possibly offer all three, uh, which would be more enticing from an oath-related standpoint. I totally agree. Um, and then I could see if he was saying, I'll return the Silmarils to you, just flat, flat out saying, I'll return the Silmarils that, that, you know, like, you have beaten me. If the message is... <clears throat> you have beaten me. We, obviously, we cannot stand against you. Uh, uh, if you will leave me in peace, I will return to you that which I that which I, you know, wrongfully stole, along with a wear guild for you know those you know for your grandfather, you know for Finway and for the others who have died. You know, he, he's going to play the contrition card, right? He's going to say that he's he's been beaten and he's giving up. And he's returning all the Silmarils. If he's offering to return all the Silmarils, then I can see an argument that says, "Look, we can't, we can't walk away from that." Like the the oath says, like we have to, you know. So if there's even a, if we think there's even a chance that this is legit, then we've got to, we've got to at least try. Yeah, that that seems like a that seems like a simple fix. Although the counter argument to that would be, doesn't that make it even more unlikely that it's true? Right. Well, see, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, sort of like. One could imagine a world where, like, like it seems like it could almost be plausible that he'd be willing to part with one Silmaril. But if he's like, oh, you can just have them all. I went to all this trouble to steal them. Then it, that, I would think that would make them even more suspicious. But then maybe that raises the stakes for them where they basically know it's a lie, and yet they have to do it anyway. I, so one, I did want to comment, though, on the, this idea of one Silmaril. Um, I think what you say is true from kind of a common sense standpoint – but their behavior later in the book uh, doesn't suggest that, right? Like, it, there are frequently circumstances where, like, yes. more, you know, where, where it's like there's two Silmarils up there and one down here. You know, if you're really, if the goal is to recover all of them, you, I would think you'd go for the two, but they repeatedly go for the low hanging fruit. They're like, well, right. we could go try to get the two from Morgoth, which is totally impossible, or we could go kill our cousin and take it from him. Yeah, let's, let's do that. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 difficult because it seems 
Morgoth's play in the whole Parley situation is he's playing on their overconfidence, right? Especially if he thinks that Fanor is still alive. If he thinks that Fanor is still alive, then he's basically saying, okay, Fanor has a toweringly high opinion of himself. That if I pretend that I'm beaten and I give up, Fanor is going to buy that. Right. I mean, he's going to swallow that hole uh, because that's just what he thinks anyway. You know, he, he, he assumes that he's going to be able to beat me. So if I come in and say, like, oh, Fanor, like, I can't possibly stand up to you. Some people wouldn't buy that, but Fanor totally would. Right. Um, so he's playing up. He's 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 playing up to their self-confidence. Um, do they fall prey to that? Or if so, like, do some of his sons fall prey to that? And which ones if they do? Um, I wouldn't think that Kurofin would necessarily have his father's self-delusions in that way. Um, uh, Kelgorm could buy it. That I could I could see Kelgorm and Karanthir would be my top two candidates for most overconfident of <laughs> fan or sons. Uh, I could see, for instance, the conversation going something like this. The messenger comes and says, you've won. We're offering the Silmarils or a Silmarils, a wear guild. Uh, discuss amongst yourselves. And then Kelgorm and Karanthir are saying, hey, we won. Look at that. Like, obviously we won because we're that awesome. Let's go collect our winnings. And Kurofin is like, dudes, like, come on now. Uh, this is a ploy. And that seems pretty obvious that this is a ploy. We should be, we shouldn't, we should, we shouldn't go, or we should think about how we can uh, come at this in a in a more cunning way. And Mithros can be the one who is like, but if there's even a chance, we should go. But I agree with Kurofin; it's probably a trap. So I, I I will go alone, right? I will go alone because you know somebody somebody needs to go in case um, there is any chance that we could get a Silmaril out of this and fulfill and, you know, and, and, and free ourselves from this oath. Uh, but, uh, but, but let's not, but Kurfin's probably right. Let's not put anybody else into danger. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Hmm. So I can see that working. Tony is thinking that Maglor would be the voice of reason. Um, Marielle says Maglor could want to believe it so that it's over. Yeah, I, I'm really thinking that they, Mithros and Maglor, would already be talking that way, right? Like not, we want the Silmarils because we are totally and wholeheartedly committed to the Silmaril recovery project, but rather... We, we want the oath to be done. We want to fulfill the oath so that the, the, this oath that we've taken can rest and that we can move forward. Um, uh, but so if Marie was asking earlier, if they think that the Silmarils are going to be handed over, 
why don't they go with even more strength than they do? Like, why don't they just, if they think the Silmarils are there waiting to be handed over, why don't they just, why don't the Feanorians descend upon that parley spot with their entire army? Mithros being, brings more soldiers than he said he would, gonna, than he said he would bring, but why doesn't he bring all the soldiers, right? Why, why, why does, why does he treat it like a parley at all? Um, and again, I think my answer to that would be Mithros saying, there's a really good chance that this is a trap and I want to be prepared for it. And we'll hope that it, even if it is a trap, we can fight our way out. Um, but we don't want to put everybody at risk uh, for this because we're reasonably confident that it's a, that it's a trap. Um, yeah. Tony, he would definitely take volunteers. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think I think this I think this this makes sense, right? Like I think uh, um, that like I don't, none, none none of the nothing that we've set up here so far seems implausible or out of character for the for for the sons of Feanor. Um, like I think I, I like I think if if. Mithros is going out of sheer like is like reluctantly going because he either feels that they have to take the chance or he feels like the oath requires him to do so. I think his his but if he but if he thinks that there's basically 99% chance that it's a trap, he definitely you know I don't think the response to that would be to take overwhelming force um, um, because he knows there's no Silmarils. What's the point? Like there's no point in taking in fighting that battle because they're not going to get anything for it anyway. Um, yeah. So so I think this I think this makes sense and I think I think um, you know I mean I guess there's an argument to be made that if they fell prey to overconfidence maybe they might do that. Well let's go and rub them once and for all. But I think I think having Mydros sort of be in charge I think he's actually going in part in in good faith. You know he's not going to plan a double cross, um, but also out of out of a certain amount of practicality, he knows it wouldn't work anyway. Yeah, yeah, and he. So yeah, I, I agree. I don't think that Mithros is planning to double cross. I think he's just bringing protection because he doesn't. Because it's, it's so it's not bad faith. It's lack of trust uh, in Sauron, right? Um, yeah, maybe he would arrange. A signal of some kind, uh, you know, that if if things go bad, he I don't know how that he would do that exactly. Maybe that's not necessary. Um, but yeah, Murray, like, you're right. It's simple. certainly very different I think, of trust. Like I think he's taking, I think he's taking some protection because he feels like he has to. But I think he, I think he acknowledges like, like you know, this is probably a trap. And if it is a trap, I'm a goner. Right. So right. I, I think, I think, I think far from it being like, you know, a game of chess where he's trying to escape. I think he's sacrificing himself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think it would have at least a very strong element of self sacrifice If not, you know, a, like I am planning to die and I am laying, I am hereby laying down my life. It wouldn't be quite that strong. Um, but certainly, like he knows that there's a really good chance that it's going to lead to his death and he's going ahead with it anyway. And he's arranging it as he is so that he only 
of his brothers will die. Um, yeah, and I agree, Tony, there should be a penitential element there as well. Like he, he's, um, he still feels bad about the burning of the ships and the betrayal of Fingolfin's host. I agree. Um, so, so yeah, like opening himself up to danger, you know, putting himself in harm's way. I, I do think that Mithros is the more willing to do that because he feels that he needs to atone for what he did. So, um, so yeah. here's a, here's a question that Marie brought up though. Like, do we, do, do we, I mean, if we go this route of like, um, of, of, of the self-sacrifice route. I mean, does that make them look stupid and naive? I mean, should they, should, maybe, should, maybe, maybe Maidro says, maybe he doesn't intend to sacrifice himself, but he doesn't want to put any of his brothers in danger, but maybe he still takes a large force thinking, um, well, this should be good. And, you know, if they betray us, then I'll, I'll fight my way out, but I don't want to endanger any of you. Cause it, cause that would make the, the the betrayal more tragic if if it looks like he planned for it and still ends up getting clobbered anyway. I don't know. I'm yeah. I'm 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 torn between those two ideas. The sort of I'm going to take a I'm going to take a skeleton force because I'm pretty sure this is a trap and I don't want to get anyone else killed and yeah. we wouldn't stand a chance anyway. Um, you know, like like I'm I you know I'm only going because I think I have to, not because I think anything can be gained. Or the idea of like I'm going to go. I think it's a trap, but I'm going to take I'm going to take a strong military force because hey, we beat him once already. We can beat him again. Yeah, exactly. Because see, that's part of the factor for me here. Because remember, thinking back to what the text says about the parley, right? It it adds, you know, uh, it's got one of those like final kicker phrases, right? And there were Balrogs, right? Um, but I feel like from a strategic standpoint, like, of course there were Balrogs. Like, who was expecting there not to be Balrogs? Remember how the battle went, uh, right? The battle went, the orcs versus elves was no contest, right? The the elves mopped the floor with the orcs. So the 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 conflict between the Feanorians and the forces of Morgoth was a completely one-sided victory on the side of the Feanorians, except for the Balrogs, right? The Balrogs come after Feanor. So the Feanorians, the sons of Feanor would know no one no one better that there is only one thing we have to be afraid of <laughs> among the forces of Morgoth, and that's Balrogs. So is there, are they seriously, is there somebody going to be somebody among the sons of Fanor who's like, okay, Morgoth is calling a parley, but I doubt they'll send Balrogs. There probably won't be any Balrogs at the par at the parley, right? And then have Mithros be like, oh no, Balrogs! Like, I just, I can't see that. Like, of course they're going to, of course they're going to send Balrogs. Um, uh, yeah, and I'm, and I'm, I'm starting to, the, 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 the posts by our listeners and looking at the text. Now I'm coming back around to that idea that um, um, that maybe um, uh, m you know that that maybe it's not self-sacrificial, but maybe it's like you know um, that he's actually planning to betray Morgoth and then he gets his comeuppance. Well, but how would he be doing a betrayal exactly? Um, I mean, I could see by the way 
remember that even if none of them are quite as self-confident as Feanor, they still have plenty of reasons for self-confidence, right? I could definitely see Mytheroth saying, I'll bring like a dozen guys, and me and a dozen guys could obviously carve our way out of 800 orcs. Who cares, right? Like, you know, orcs are not a problem. So, uh, I mean, we've seen that plenty in battle, so let them bring as many orcs as, the, as, as they want, right? Um, and even if they bring Balrogs, they can still run away, right? So I could imagine him thinking... Uh, so, Dave, this is in support of the uh, I, I, I plan to fight my way out if things really go south line of thinking from Mythros, right? I can see Mythros thinking that way. It would make sense in the context of, uh, um, of what the experience that they have had in battle with the forces of Morgoth so far. Um, but... And so he, but he, so he would essentially be guilty of overconfidence in thinking that he could fight his way out, and then he's captured. Um, yeah. So Maria, I agree. He 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 is dishonest in the sense of he says, I I think the terms of the parley should be that he comes alone. Um, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to get all like rules lawyering right and be like, I promise I will only bring six, six and then I'd be like, but I actually brought twelve, so there, right? I, I, it should be more dramatic than that. Like it should be like, come alone, and then he doesn't come alone, right? He brings he brings uh, he brings soldiers with him. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, Now, Hakan and Mariel are reminding us that the sons of Feanor did just drive away the Balrogs. Sort of. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I don't think they beat them off. Um, I mean, I don't think the Balrogs retreated from the battle with their tails between their legs right after getting thumped by the sons of Feanor. Um, I think that they... Um, withdrew believing that they had mortally wounded Feanor. Hey, it's like a weathertop parallel, right? Uh, uh, apparently mortally wounding the person that they care about and then leaving, right? Um, which, hey, it worked out the first time, right? Not the second time. Um, yeah, so, but exactly. Both Marie and Mary are saying, right, but the point is they might think so, right? They might think that, yes, I could see somebody saying, Okay, yeah, we can handle. You can handle as many orcs as you like, Mythros. But what if the Balrogs come and have Mythros or somebody else say, "Well, the Balrogs ran away from us last time we fought them, right?" I'm sure you'll be fine. Um, again, which just means coming back to coming back to the overconfidence thing, right? Um, I had Bill back here with me last time. He can take care of the Balrogs. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I could imagine. I could imagine them um, them thinking. Basically, again, there's some there's some cause for overconfidence um, on the part of the Feanorians here. Um, yeah, well, we'll have to think more about the Balrogs for next time when we actually talk about the parley. Well, wait, no, because the parley is actually happening here. So, okay, so here's my my other question we're breaking our Balrog rule already. 
we barely like the Balrog rule is is still like the ink is still wet on the Balrog rule and we're already breaking it. Remember our Balrog rule? We decided that the Balrog rule was going to be that anytime a Balrog shows up in combat, somebody dies, like a major character dies. And we're breaking that rule here if we don't kill anybody else off. Wait, perfect solution. Let's kill off Amros. He can bring Amros with him and the Balrogs yes. can kill him. Oh, problem <laughs> solved. Okay. I knew there was a reason we spared him in the last episode. Oh, boy. I feel so much better. Uh, awesome. Perfect. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm teasing you guys. I'm, te I'm teasing you. I'm not really going to kill off Amros right away. Uh, Wait, no, why not? After his very brief respite. Uh, <laughs> no, let's kill him. <laughs> he barely had the chance to look around him. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Marie, I know. Then we'd have a servant of Morgoth kill a son of Feanor, but it would be the nonconformist son of Feanor, so that's okay, right? Uh, uh, okay, no, sorry. I'm just, I don't really have it out for Amros. It's just, I, I'm, it's just like it has now become a running joke. Like, uh, you know, uh, um, Amros for me, for the rest of the film film project is going to be like Kenny from South Park. But uh, anyway, um, but we're breaking the Balrog rule. What do we do about the Balrog rule? No Balrogs. Now we have to have, we can't not have Balrogs. First of all, it is going to be really difficult to capture him if we don't have Balrogs because, you know, um, and I know that everybody else who comes with Mithros dies, but that's not enough. It's not enough to kill off red shirts. We, 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 the whole point, the Balrog rule, the whole point of the Balrog rule was not just that they're really scary in battle, but that their arrival is the harbinger of death. That when a Balrog shows up on screen in battle, you know, somebody's going to die. Um, Uh, and uh, no, no, Nick, it's not enough to try to like uh, pull a George R. R. Martin and give one of the red shirts a long extended backstory so that we care about him before we kill him off. Uh, that would not, that would not satisfy us. And Tony is asking if there's anybody else. <laughs> Is there anybody? Is there anybody else in the host of fan or that we could kill? Um, I uh, I feel like that uh, that uh, that Monty Python episode about the 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 uh, the Battle of Britain, uh, really obscure Monty Python uh, sequence when they're asking for somebody to make a dramatic sacrifice. Uh, but anyway, um, no no a massacre is not that's not a loophole. It does not satisfy a loophole in the thing. Um, yeah. No, it, ha it has to be. It, it has to be a major character. We wanted to. We want because the whole point of the rule is not to to establish a technicality. The point of the rule is to make the audience feel dread when a Balrog shows up on screen in yes. this manner because they wonder which character they care about is about to bite it. We want people to take the Balrog seriously, and we want the Balrogs to be a really big deal with capital letters. So. Right. What about why? Why do we need Balrogs? Because we this is the this is where we're We could introduce trolls here and have trolls turn the battle. 
Um, or Balrogs leading platoons of trolls. Right. Well, it's it's true that we can avoid it if the Balrogs don't actually engage, if they're just like lurking in the background. But still, I'm not comfy with that. I mean, of course, obviously the text says that there are Balrogs. Oh, here's my problem as well, though. Like, it... it it is inconducive to the awesomeness of Mithros to have him captured by anything less than a Balrog. Um, I mean, if we're introducing trolls, it's kind of an exciting, uh, it's an exciting way to introduce trolls to have them come and be the ones to capture Mithros. I can just, I can just. You're right. They're not as cool. Get behind that. But they're not as cool. And, um. <sighs> Yeah, trolls don't have wings. Okay. We could... See, okay, here's my problem with making an exception to the Balrog rule. My problem with making the exception to the Balrog rule is that we've barely established the Balrog rule, right? This has come up once, right? Um, we're so far one for one on the Balrog showing up and killing somebody, namely Feanor. So... Uh, it's not had any time to establish itself as a trend. If we deviate from it immediately, then it just, it's not going to be a rule. We're not going to, it, it, it won't, it won't happen. Uh, I agree, Marie, that associating trolls with Balrogs is good. We are going to have later have Gothmog, the troll guard of Gothmog. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, Because I like the Balrog rule. I think that's really good. I don't know. But it seems like we have to choose. We have to choose between having Balrogs be there at all or sticking to the Balrog rule. Or we could just kill off Amras. That would solve the problem. I'm telling you, my first solution is still the neatest possible solution here. Uh, I vote for that. Karita's in favor of, of, of killing off somebody. We haven't, as Marie says, we have not named anybody in the, in the camp of the Feanorians other than the six, the, uh, the six surviving sons and Celebrimbor. They're the only named characters we have available to us here. Um, well, let's but, kill uh, off Celebrimbor and then he can come back. You know, like, <laughs> like Corfindo, like Corfindo. It can tag yeah. along with Corfindo. Foreshadow, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, okay. Here's what. Here's what. So, if we already had two or three data points prior to this with the Balrog rule, I would be okay making an exception. Like, I could even like it if we have. The Balrogs capture Mithros and be on the verge of killing him, and then, but only to have Sauron or even Morgoth himself step in and say, "Don't kill him!" Right, and instead he's going to get stapled to the cliff. And so, like the torment of Mithros is the alternative to the death that the Balrogs bring him, which makes the rescue of Mithros seem like doubly you catastrophic because then he is like one who returns from the dead. Right. I like it. I mean, that could work, but it's 
the second data point, right? If it's the second data point, we're not making an exception. We're scuppering the rule. That's true. The rule's not That's been true. established. That's true. Providing a dramatic exception only works if, if it feels like an exception. If it's, it's if we can't we can't make an exception before we've established the rule. If we make an exception before we establish the rule, we're simply reversing the rule. We're, sim we're simply undermining the rule. Yeah, no, but see, uh, Marie, I think that Aonway's death by Balrog back in season one is too far away. And besides, that was more of a, like, Morgoth executing someone. I mean, they were acting as Morgoth's executioner. But the, the rule is, again, like, when you're in battle against the forces of darkness and a Balrog shows up, you know, like, someone significant is going to die. Like, that's the, that's, the, that's the heart of the Balrog rule. So, no, Hakon, it's not about Balrogs following rules. It's about us following rules. It's about us establishing that rule because we want to create a particular association with Balrogs and our viewers. And at Just the like, end of the day, yeah. yeah, like like let's keep keep let's keep our eyes on the ball here, folks. The, yeah. the idea is we're going to be using Balrogs a lot, and and if. And and if we're not careful by later in the, by the time that a Balrog shows up in the Mines of Moria in our adaptation of Lord of the Rings, our viewers are going to be like, right. Balrogs, come on, you can take him. He's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, we we've, they were killing these things left and right, and Gandalf's like Gandalf's not even an elf. He's a he's a right. Maiar. You should be able to take right. him, no problem. Yeah, but come on, Gandalf, you was fan or took them on one on three. Let's go. Yeah, the with a ring for heaven's sake, right? Exactly. So I mean, golly. Yeah. Remember, yeah. like remember, you know, uh, uh, wings and visual portrayal notwithstanding, remember the feeling that you got the first time you watched Peter Jackson's Fellowship yes. of the Ring and the Balrog showed up. Like, it yes. was amazing. It was like, oh, crap. We want yes. people to feel that way every time. Every time. Every time. Exactly. So that's why, you know, so like, you know, Nick, in response, you're talking about, you know, sacrificing characters to a rule we made up. It's not about an arbitrary rule. It's not about legalism. It's about the importance of that effect. If we want Balrogs to have that effect, we need to be consistent with that. We can't afford to let them degenerate in the mind of our readers into garden variety thugs which is kind of what they look like if they're just there as Sauron's bouncers and they grab Mithros and drag him off. If that's the worst that's going to happen, you know, that like they're, it's, I, I think I, it does really undermine the Balrog effect. Um, so I think we only have two choices. I, I mean, think trolls we either are garden variety thugs. Trolls, trolls are, are garden variety thugs. Exactly. Right. So therefore, we either kill off Amros, because he's the only candidate. I mean, come on. There's nobody else we can kill off. We can't kill off any of the other sons of Fanor. I mean, I wouldn't mind getting rid of Karanthir, but he's got jobs later on, right? We need... Karanthir is such a jerk, we need him. Uh, so we need... Obviously, we need Kelgorm and Kurafin. I mean, we need everybody. Amros is the only one that we don't need, absolutely need. Um, obviously, we need Kelbrimbor. So he's the only candidate for being killed off. I ask myself, what is of the two choices? So the two choices are one, we kill off a character, or two, we don't have Balrogs there. And frankly, not having Balrogs there are uh, not having Balrogs there is solves two problems. 
right? It solves the let's not let Balrogs degenerate through overexposure and being less than totally awesome or less than totally awful, I suppose one could say. And it also solves the bad guys planning cycle. If this is a completely 100% Sauron operation, right? Uh, and feature, and it can feature, like I said, I kind of like the whole value of the introduction of trolls, right? Like he wasn't expecting trolls. Um, so exactly, Marie, that's my question. Is it more important to have Balrogs at the parley or more important to maintain? Uh, well, I would say first and foremost, Marie, I would say first and foremost, is it more important to have Balrogs at the parley or more important to retain the sort of integrity of Balrogs as we've been talking about them? I agree that the business about Sons of Fan are not being killed by any of the servants of Morgoth. That's kind of a cool thing. Um, but I'm willing to make an exception for Amros anyway, because I'm wanting to make Amros an exception to the Sons of Feanor anyhow. So uh, so I'm okay with having him kind of have a different doom from them because he's different. Um, uh, yeah. So, so right. So how kind of exactly instead of we make Sauron do something awesome and terrifying, Nick, yeah, that could work. Right. Mytheros demands, he says, no Balrogs, right. That's what, so the messenger says, come alone. Right. And Mytheros is like, okay, no Balrogs, right. I'll come alone as long as those fiery demon things don't show up. And Sauron's like, okay, I swear it shall be so, right? <laughs> and then they show up and he's like, I didn't bring any, bring any Balrogs. Instead, I brought these fellows. And you have the huge trolls come on screen for the first time, right? And grab him. Um, that could work. You know, I like the, that could work. I like the no, I like the no Balrogs demand because Maedros is going to be like, wait, you want me showing up alone? No Balrogs then because I know what that means. Exactly. No Balrogs, man. Like, I know there's the Balrog rule. rule and I I'm heard there's a rule. It. If I'm yeah, the only I've main character, yeah. if I'm the only main character on screen, I'm dead. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I am not confronting Balrogs unless I am in a full cast scene because I know what that means. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, I guess it's it, it does. We lose something by not having Mydros require Balrogs to be captured. But at the same time, um, these guys don't have any direct experience with Sauron and what he can bring to bear, right? right? They right. haven't faced werewolves or flying bat things or anything. And like I said, so. this, yeah, exactly. This whole parley tastes like Sauron. I mean, this has the flavor of yeah. Sauron's wiliness about it. So making it a, a fully Sauron operation from beginning to end, um, right? So that we're imagining, instead of imagining Sauron being put in charge of this and having some Balrogs kind of awkwardly delegated or forcibly delegated to him, if instead, basically, the backstory is Sauron being like, okay, I got this, right? Leave it to me. Um, and then he, and then he delivers, right? And he, and he brings them, and he brings them Mythros. Um, so, um, I mean, and Karita, I absolutely agree. Mothers being taken captive by Balrogs is cooler, like it is. Uh, but it's cooler, and it elevates Mithros more. But I think that the, the 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 cost to the Balrogs outweighs the benefit to to Mithros in that exchange. I think. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Hakan and Nick are both suggesting they they they'd like to see Sauron almost like by himself, uh, have him do something really powerful. Um, 
I'd also be fine with that. I would be fine with that too. Like, so like maybe he does, we do, he do, we do introduce trolls this way and he sticks the trolls on them and, and Mytheros is doing all right. You know, like Mytheros holds his own um, until Sauron steps in himself. Right. And then Sauron takes him down. I could, I could, I could live with that. I could live with that. Um, and Marie, I agree with you. And thank you, Marie, for in advance preparing the counter argument against the people who are going to be upset from, uh, by the fact that we're deviating from the text here. Um, I agree with you that the that when Tolkien wrote that bit about Balrogs being sent to the Parley to capture Mythros, the Balrogs in question, that's early concept Balrogs. Like the the when the Balrogs were just the quite numerous heavy infantry of the, uh, you know, of the armies of Morgoth. Um, and they were, that, those are the kinds of Balrogs that Tolkien originally sent to that parley anyhow. Um, so it is, although we're cutting Balrogs out, we are kind of sticking to the spirit of the original, of like the, the original concept that Tolkien had there. Um, and I agree, Tony, building up Sauron is kind of a good idea. Um, ooh, Mariel says uh, Sauron can be kind of like the anti-Melian here, uh, essentially. Yeah. In fact, we can even have Sauron sing. Huh? Uh, how, how's that for an exchange? We give up Balrogs, but we have Sauron capture Mithros with song? Come on now, huh? Right? We don't just give him a sword and let him beat up on uh, uh, Mithros personally. I mean, they can do that too. But we get some we get some song entrapment here, right? Yeah, Mario, we could do this, right? I, I think about it. Well, think think about it. You know, we can we can we can. I'll, I'll I'll leave that to the script people to come up with the the degree the the brand of awesomeness that they want to give to Sauron here. But uh, but having a prototype for the power of Sauron's uh, song to like entrap, overwhelm, uh, and ensnare folks might be kind of a good thing, right? Um, yes, Mariel, exactly. Which is why, which is why, uh, 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 Finrod is ready for it. And it could also inform Fingen singing, uh, or, or even sort of foreshadow Fingen singing as part of the, uh, part of the freeing of Mithros, right? But I, I, I like that too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Marie says she's gonna she, she, she's gonna miss uh, having uh, Mythros's uh, body have fiery whip scars on it. But don't worry, Marie, he can still have some of those from when he rescued his dad, right? Uh, uh, so we can we can you can scar him if you want to. It's it's okay. Um, okay. All right. All right. Um, excellent. Good. Okay. Phew. But we still should massacre a bunch of other folks, right? Uh, I mean, we do want to have this be. A, that's, I agree. There, he should still have some people that he brought with him, uh, and then uh, and 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 they're all going to die. So yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Excellent. Good. Phew. Well, this is easy. We're making excellent progress here. So, Kierden, let's address the Kierden issue here. So. We still have the issue that I've been kind of having for a little while here, which is um, that, uh, like, what does Kierden, what does Kierden do? Um, Kierden found the the husks of the burned ships, right? And he, uh, um, uh, he, he certainly is going to set out up the Firth of Drengus to follow the survivors of the Orc Massacre, which is what he's going to assume happened, Um 
uh, or at least that they burned the ships. They're probably going to look and find that there aren't any bodies around, though I guess they could suspect that perhaps the orcs carried them off for some dreadful reason, um, I suppose. Uh, but anyway, they, they assume something terrible happened and that it obviously must have been servants of Morgoth who did the terrible thing, because only servants of Morgoth would set fire to the ships of the Teleri, uh, clearly. Um, so... I have to admit, I am not at all sold on this final idea. Like, so after he catches sight of them, he will not make contact, but decide to send word to Thingol immediately. Why? And my question is, why? Why? That's exactly my question. Why on earth would he not make contact? How, how, how could we possibly make that make sense? Kiridan is trying to figure out what happened. Right. So he comes and he sees in the distance, like the moon rises and he sees a camp of strange elves that he's never seen or always haven't seen in a heck of a long time. Right. But anyway, they're going to look strange to him because they've changed since they've been in Valinor. And he's got to be thinking. Right. He's familiar with the rest of the elves that are there in Beleriand. And he's going to look at these elves in their encampment and say. These guys must have come back over from Valinor. Right, clearly, these are elves come back from Valinor. He's got to think they're at least entertain the possibility that they're Teleri because he knows those were the ships of the Teleri, right? So, who would be like uh, sailing the ships of the Teleri? Probably the Teleri, right? Uh, so, he's going to see a host of elves who have come to Middle Earth from Valinor who may possibly be his own kinsmen. Olway himself might be down there for all he knows. And he's going to see him from a distance and be like, Okay, I'm not going to talk to them or anything. I'm just going to turn around and go back home, and, and I'm going to go back to Thingol and say what? So I, I saw in the distance elves from Valinor, and Thingol will be like, oh, what do they say? And Cairdon's going to be like, uh, I didn't bother to talk to him. I just turned around and left. Like, how, how does that make sense? I can't, I can't make any sense of that at all. Um, he's got to uh, – He's got to – if he's going to see them, he has to make contact with them. He has to. How could he not? I, I just I, I I can't like I understand the desire to to wait for contact between the Sindar and the Noldor until season four. I totally see why for our plot purposes we want to delay that. I cannot possibly understand why somebody in this situation would come, you know, ninety five percent of the way to solving the mystery and then just be like, nah, nah, I'm good. That may be the Teleri down there. They may be in trouble. They may need help. They made their ships have been destroyed. Um, I'm not even going to find out what happened. I'm just going to turn around and go home and say that I, I mean, uh, I, I, I really, I really don't think that that's plausible, um, which leaves us with two choices. Either he makes contact or he doesn't see them. In either case, what do we do now? I am, I am not categorically against his making contact with him. I don't think that would be a disaster. My biggest problem with him making contact with them is that it's too big of a can of worms to open up right now. Um, I mean, that's going to be an awkward conversation and it's an awkward conversation that I don't know that we have time for basically in the midst of everything else that's going on. Um, Uh, yeah, I, I, 
that's my biggest problem with them making contact. Other things we could explain. I don't. I don't see any ins, insuperable difficulties to having him make contact here. I think we could manage it. Um, Marie agrees that we don't have time for Kierden's first contact. But we wanted Thingol to receive a message in the final episode that the Noldor have landed. How do they even know it's the Noldor if nobody talks to them? I mean, they're not going to recognize them from a distance. There would be a language barrier, Marie, though that lands us right back into the problem that we were anticipating from the beginning. How do we do the language barrier? But um, even the banners, Zachary, I'm not sure they're not. I mean, the banner of Feanor, he's not going to recognize the banner of Feanor, right? Um, process of elimination. Process of Who else could it be? Who else could it be? Could be the Vanyar. Could be what? What if? Uh, okay, wait. Quick, quick um, suggestion. What if they don't make contact? Kieran doesn't know who it is. He just knows that it's strange elves wearing strange clothes. Who, as far as he can tell, came over the sea on ships that are now aflame. He sends a message back to Thingol. Thingol says, well, what is this? And then Melian explains it to him. Maybe Melian is the one who knows because she, she has some foreknowledge of, of events via the music. And she realizes what's happening. I can see Melian dropping. I mean, having ending, having, you know, ending the Thingol, uh, you know, the Sindar the, the plot arc in season three with a Melian Thingol discussion seems to me fine. It seems to me like a good idea. Um, mm -hmm. It just seems weird, even to dispatch a message at that point. I mean, look, in the modern world, I would do this, right? If I were cured and I had a cell phone, <clears throat> I would totally text Thingol before I went to investigate, right? I'd be like, Strange elves spotted, about to go, um, uh, about to go check. Uh, you know, introduce myself and see who they are. You know, more soon, right? But if the messenger has to travel for weeks to get there, and then another messenger travel for weeks to get back, and you're in sight, you can see the other camp. Surely, if it's weeks to travel back to Thingol, you're going to say, hang on, I'm going to wait one more day to send that messenger until I talk with them. For You wouldn't send a messenger right before you had the conversation. You'd be like, there's news. I'm going to finish getting all the news. Then I'm going to send the messenger, right? I mean, who would do that? Um, so I just, yeah. Now, um, both Marielle and Tony are concerned about Melian looking all-knowing, and I agree, we don't want to make her all-knowing. Um, uh, but see, Nick, I, I can't imagine Kirtan not wanting to make contact with him. First of all, they're elves, right? What's he going to think? Is Kierden seriously going to see a group of elves, even armed elves, and think like, oh man, 
they might slay their kin at a moment's notice. Like that's not going to be on anybody's radar screen. Who would imagine? The, the whole point is that the kin's thing has to be unimaginable, right? So they can't look at them and, be, and Kierden, There's no way Kierden can look at any camp of elves and think, "I better watch out for my life." Right? I can't put myself in danger going in amongst those elves who might up and kill me any moment. He's not. That can't be in his worldview, right? So he wouldn't possibly think that. And uh, and anyway. He's still under the uh, he's still under the the impression. I mean, he's still operating on the premise that whoever sailed over in these ships are victims, right? Victims of Morgoth. So even if they're armed, he's gonna still go be like, "Hi, who are you, and how can we help?" Um, yeah. So I. Um, yeah, I can't imagine that he has any reason to, to believe that they're hostile. Again, I, the kinslaying has to be, like, to the Sindar, it has to be literally unimaginable. Not just, like, the worst-case scenario. Not just, like, this confirms the worst of my suspicions about the Noldor. But, like, this is something that it literally never even occurred to me to suspect. Like, I never imagined that this could possibly be a scenario that happened, right? That you slew the Teleri on the way out. Um, in order for the kinslaying, for like the shock of Kyrdan and Thingol to have its effect when they do learn the truth in season four, I think we need to make it utterly off the radar screen from their point of view. Um, So, Marie says, very logically, then are we fine about Thingol not learning about the arrival of the Noldor until next season? When did Beleg leave? Beleg left right after the battle. We had Celeborn still there with him. We were going to send Celeborn back, weren't we? We could... What if we do this in three stages? Beleg and Celeborn, remember we were bringing both Beleg and Celeborn with, with Cirdan, right? So we have Beleg goes back right after the phallus is taken by the werewolf army, right? So he's the one who brings back the news that um, the news that the Fallas has fallen and the werewolf army has conquered them and the, uh, and Kyrdan and his people have though by and large escaped and are, uh, are on board the ships. So Celeborn is still with him. The only thing that makes sense to me, the only way I can see a messenger coming back to Thingol prior to him solving the mystery is if he sends back a messenger right away upon discovering the ships. He discovers the ships and says, this is a, like, Single needs to know about, this is a major thing. Somebody has come back over from Valinor and they're in trouble because Morgoth, they're obviously fighting with Morgoth, right? Because Morgoth's, Morgoth's, uh, and, and, they're, and it's probably our kid. Olway might be back, right? He's got to, Kyrton's got to be thinking that there's the ships of the Teleri, right? The Teleri have returned. Thingol needs to know about this right away. And they might be in trouble, right? Thingol needs to know about this instantly. So when he discovers the ships burned, he and Celeborn talk, right? 
and he's like, okay, Kelleborn, you go back and tell Thingol right now, right? We have reason to believe that they're, the Teleri have come back to Middle-earth and they might be in trouble. So like, go, you know, uh, right away, tell Thingol that. And then, and he says, meanwhile, I'm going to go and investigate. I'm going to try and figure, I'm going to try to find him and try to figure it out, right? So that we have Kyrdin, um so that we have Kyrdin, um uh, making first contact with them, which we can delay then um, if we don't need the mess. And that gives Celeborn time to arrive back in Menegroth and deliver his message. Um, I agree, Marie, then we lose or at least delay first contact between Celeborn and Galadriel. True, true. It, I mean, having Celeborn first see Galadriel when she's marching like right with Fingolfin under the rising of the moon, I mean, that would be a little bit awesome, but um, I guess he could send a red shirt back, Marielle, and we could keep Celeborn with him. I guess, I guess, I guess. Uh, that way we could keep Celeborn as a person for him to talk to and have him meet the Noldor and, and, and meet Galadriel right off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's, I got, there's no reason it has to be a named character. We could have him send a red shirt messenger, but just make a point of him sending a messenger as soon as he finds the ships. And then that way, the red shirt messenger can arrive to Thingol in episode 13. He wouldn't be able to arrive with the news the Noldor have arrived, right? But he would still, but this, and that would actually ameliorate the Melian problem too, right? If he comes back and says, the Teleri have returned, you know, like the ships of your brother Olway are here and like the Teleri, the Teleri are returning, might be in trouble. Melian could merely have a foreboding that that's not the whole story. Right, you know, she could be like, "Thing, Thingol, I'm not sure. Like, uh, uh, be prepared for disappointment here. I think there's, I think this story is more complicated than we think. Right, so she doesn't know everything, but she will be able to tell. Um, it's, it. This is perhaps, this is probably not what we think. Okay, all right, um, that works. That works. Okay, cool. Good. Good. I'm happy with this. So with Kyrdin, so Kyrdin, let's let's wait. Let's have him not, we don't even need him. Do we need him in this episode? Or maybe we can, enjoy, like, as the moon is rising, we can cut to Kyrdin. Kyrdin can see the camp in the distance, and we just have him not make contact yet, right? Um, so then we can just kind of wait. We can, we can, we can just push that back a little bit. That would work. Um, yeah, cool, cool. All right, good. Making excellent progress now. Okay, so meanwhile in Doriath, let me just say, as I think I said last week, I need, I still need convincing why we don't have Melian putting up the girdle in the last episode. Like that seemed to me an awesome way to end the previous episode. Uh, I think, as I recall, I left, I, I sort of remained agnostic about this and I said, please script outliners convince me 
that this is a good idea. You know, show me that this works awesomely, and uh, uh, and I will, uh, um, I'll be, I'll, I will, I will, I'll be happy to 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 submit to this. Um, I don't actually mind leaving Doriath behind for an episode, essentially. Like if we establish, if in episode 11, by the end of episode 11, we have the girdle of Melian going up. Um, and so we establish that Doriath is a safe place and Thingol returns to it. And then we just have an episode in which Doriath is safe, right? We have established that Doriath is safe. Um, and, you know, we begin the long, quiet period of Doriath being safe and nothing particularly happening there. Um, so, uh, so I'm fine. I, I would, that, that I would be okay with that. I, I don't think we need to have like continued exposure of, of Thingol here. Um, uh, and yeah, yeah. Um, the elves of Doriath safe, but hemmed in. I, I think that's kind of where we can have them here. Um, and we can just return to them to have them, have, to have them react to the rising of the moon. Like the moon rises, we should have Doriath shots. Right. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with like, I, you know, to me, it, it, it doesn't, Nick, I'm not convinced that it changes their arc for the season. It just, it, I mean, it alters the timing of it a little bit, but I don't think it has to, I don't think we have to have all of the stories, you know, come to their, uh, come to their conclusion at the same point. I mean, I, we, we, like I said, I'm not, uh, I'm not against it. Frankly, I don't see that episode 12 or episode 11 makes very, very big odds as far as that's concerned. Um, but I don't care. I mean, I'm not like wanting to put my foot down about this. It just kind of seems to me a little drawn out. Like we, you know, we were interrupting the battle with the spiders and now we're coming back to the battle with the spiders. Um, if we wait, if we injured, if, if we come back in the next episode for the spider, the finish of the spider battle, um, it would seem to me that a lot of time has passed or like to invite the idea of the passage of time, in which case, like, why does Melian wait? Why is she, you know, so we had, uh, we had, I, I kind of I like it all happening at once. Have have uh, Dairon and Luthien fighting the spiders with their music, as we talked about last time, uh, and so they are holding the spiders at bay. And then Melian comes out with her song, which is even greater. Ha having those things kind of move together, both dramatically and musically, to have the girdle of Melian be the like full statement of the theme, which is just hinted at in the song of Luthien and Dairon in the beginning of that battle. That seems to me to be much more powerful than Luthien and Dairon come out and fight the spiders and they kind of do a, a reasonably good job, but the battle is still going on and they're still besieged by spiders. And then some, and, and Melian doesn't sing yet for some reason. And then in the next episode, she's like, okay, it's time for me to go out and sing and establish the girdle, which I could perfectly well have done, you know, before. I just, um, uh, I, I just, it just seems to me that that's kind of dragging out the spider battle more than it needs to. And, and I, I would, it seems to me more powerful just to have that all resolved at once. Um, I mean, I'm fine with that. Um, 
but like so like i said my preference is to do them together i'm not totally anti this if it works it works convince me that it works and and then i'm i'm fine um ale the more i think about it um the more I th yeah so maria i agree we'll return to this question when we do the review of the script outlines um but um uh ale the more i th we've been kicking ale down the road forever like we talked about doing the nan elmoth real estate transaction back in like episode three or episode two no not two episode three right since episode three we've been talking about okay so now are we going to do the nan elmoth real estate transaction um and now I, i'm I, the more i think about that the more i think that should be a season four thing that should be part of like establishing stuff and that's like a Bolarian and its realms issue right i, I don't think uh, I don't think we need to do that here. It's not part of the dramatic arc of this season. I mean, it's not, you know, the beating off of the attack of Morgoth and, and the apparent deliverance, the sort of dubious and qualified deliverance by the Noldor returning. And, um, the, you know, I, I, you know, the, the establishment of the, uh, you know, the doom of Mandos and everything, you know, all these things that are happening. Nan Elmoth seems to me part of the season four story. And I think that we should use it in the front half of season four in order to set up Arathel, um, which needs to happen before the end of, of, of season four. So, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think that we need to, um, because I don't think that Ale is a loose end. I mean, we introduced him as a character. We haven't involved as a character. We've introduced him as a character and shown him working with the dwarves and being involved in the battle for deliverance. I don't think there's a plot line really that's hanging with Ale, um, unless I mean, like we'd have to introduce it, like him wanting to to be uh, to uh, to be there. So I don't um, I don't think that we need to like the. I would like to take up residence in then Elmoth and make it into my creepy little domain sounds to me like the beginning of a new plot arc, namely the the Arathel Maiguin plot arc, rather than the end of, of this. I mean he's 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 there, he's been introduced, he's involved. What more do we need? Um yeah um is the so is the the problem about him being able to pass the girdle? I think he can pass the girdle. Look, if the girdle prevented anybody who was a jerk from passing through, how the heck did Cyros get through, right? I, I don't think I don't think that um, I don't think that the girdle does personality profiling. I mean, I think like yes, this he he has a dark heart, um, but he's not he's not a servant of Morgoth, you know. I mean, he's not a. Um, I I. I I, I mean, I agree he's a different kind of jerk. He's a more serious level, is a far more advanced uh, uh, bad guy than um, Cyros is, but I, he's not an orc. You know, I, I, um, I, I, I think, yeah, Tony, exactly. Tony says, I think it would stop anyone who is imbued with Morgoth's scattered power. Um, in fact, Tony, that might be a really interesting way for us to be able to raise that question um, in, in, a, in actual dialogue, right? As Morgoth is distributing his own power through the world and through his servants, that could be exactly what the girdle is designed to keep out, right? Which 
wouldn't explain the spiders, but let's not worry about that right now. Uh, anyway, uh, the 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 point is, I don't think that Aeol, I think that Aeol is definitely, certainly on a trajectory to make even more dubious life choices than he already has made, but he's not an orc. He's not a troll. He's not a werewolf. He's not a Balrog. Um, he's, he's, um, he's, uh, um, he's an elf making very bad choices. Would it keep the, uh, would it keep the Feanorians out? I don't think it would not like it keeps out the, uh, I mean, they're not welcome. Uh, the sons of fan are not welcome in Doriath, but, um, but would it stop them? Would they be physically prevented from entering Doriath like orcs and servants of the enemy are? Do we know that they would be? I don't know that they would be. Um, yeah, Tony says the girdle wouldn't keep them out, but the border guards would. Yeah, that's pretty much how I think about it too. So, so no, I think that, Aeol coming in and um, uh, uh, coming to Menegroth and doing that transaction in Menegroth is a thing that can happen in season. I don't see any reason to to prevent him coming in. Um, uh, Marie, if we had him request the land before, let's cut that. Let's just save that. Let's just save that. Again, I want to make Nan Elmoth his occupation of Nan Elmoth be part of the Arathel story arc. This, the more I think about that, the more sense that that makes. Um, I like introducing him as a character so we know who he is, right? And we know that he is kind of this dark and brooding individual and that he's kind of shady, both physically, you know, figuratively and literally, and that he's uh, in league with the dwarves and he's the smith and he's, you know, so we've got his dubiousness, we've got the darkness of his heart, we've got his smithcraft, um, but we um, uh, we don't we don't I don't think we don't need the the Nan Elmoth pot at all. I know that that was one of the things at the beginning of the season that we were brainstorming as one of the things one of the Balerian plot lines that we could do in this season. But the more we've we've worked things out, the more I feel like that's really that's really a season a season four thing. Um, I know you guys keep, uh, Nick and Marie keep talking about how we have like at least two seasons worth of stuff squeezed into season four. I understand that's a conversation for so another day, especially not when I only have five more minutes to broadcast and I still have another topic to talk about. So let's talk about the Helcaraxa. Um, we already did talk about the Helcaraxa, fortunately. So uh, this is just sort of some kind of color details. Uh, I like it except i don't like the blocking by the water like i said let's ditch the blocking with the water uh and forget the tides and please try to encourage everybody else to forget about the tides and um uh yeah i agree like exhausted cold weak frostbitten yeah absolutely um and i love the fingolfin coming in and stating his plans to find morgoth quick question though we want him to come in and beat on the doors of Angband, right? That's got to happen, right? That needs to happen. So, uh, thinking of the way that you guys phrased that, well, you know, Fingolfin states his plans for finding Morgoth and Feanor in that order, right? So first he goes to Angband and he beats on the doors and he gets no response, and then he's like, "Okay, let's go, 
let's go take care of uh, let's go take care of that that brother in mine, that brother of mine. Um, yes, and not yet notice his nephew. Exactly, Mytheros is already hanging up on the cliff. Um, so we're going to do that in episode thirteen, Marie. Okay, in which case we can't do much. Right, I, of of his advance, right? I don't think we even have them make camp. I don't think we, they they arrive. We have the dramatic moment, the blowing of the trumpets and the landing and the relief and the rising of the moon, and then we leave them, right, and come back to them in the next episode. I think, um, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that that's what we. I think that that that's what we do. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hey, well, my, my, uh, my last, my last slide was easy. Let's look at questions for next time. All right. So next episode is the season finale, Friday, April 6th, the season finale. Don't forget, um, posts about, uh, artwork sets, costume music, et cetera. Absolutely. As we said at the beginning, uh, please do, uh, uh, you know, those of you who have been thinking about that or would like to work on that, there's still time. Um, April 6th, we're going to be doing session 18, and then we'll have, uh, I'm sure, several uh, script outline episodes. So don't worry, Nick, you'll have plenty of time to work on the uh, the outlines for the last few episodes, because if you remember last time, it took us like three or four episodes to get through the review of all the script outlines. So we'll still be talking about the first half of the season for several episodes after uh, after the last after the next one, I'm sure. Anyway, so, uh, so my questions. Why does Morgoth staple Mithros to the cliff like what do we show of morgoth there now i know it's 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 happening in this episode but i want to i want to like we haven't talked about morgoth's point of view we talked about sauron right i i want to do something at least to consider morgoth's perspective on all of this where's morgoth at the end of this like what's in his mind um i feel like we need to return to him um and uh, anyway you know, and maybe even I, I'm even wanting to think about having Mithros captured, but not actually pinned up until the beginning of next episode. In which case, we might have a dialogue between Morgoth and Mithros to sort of anticipate the dialogue between Hurin and Morgoth, right after the Near Nith Arnoidiad. Um, so, what, like, what is our conversation? What is, what is Morgoth's rationale? What's he thinking? Why does he do what he do? Um, what, what is his point of view here um, during this whole thing? So, okay. Now, what are the remaining? What are the dynamics among the remaining five Feanorians after Mithras's capture? Uh, what are their reactions to Fingolfin's host, uh, in particular, when it arrives? How are we going to handle the standoff between them there? Um, who's in charge when Mithras leaves? Is it Kurofin? Um, and if so, again, how does how does that work? We need to uh, we need to establish what's going on among the Feanorians. Um, is this just Kurofin like rubbing his hands and saying that his nefarious plot is coming to fruition or what? Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so, and then how much interaction between Fingolfin's host and the Fanorians do we want to show in this episode? And this kind of comes back to like, where is exactly the climax of this episode? Uh, yes, the rising of the sun, but um, what are people doing? Right. Um, uh, so, um, uh, yeah, what exactly are, 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 are uh, you know, because we, we can kind of leave it a little bit cliffhangery, of course, um, but 
I don't think we should have no contact between them. So anyway, so we definitely need to think about the interaction between the host of Fingolfin and the Fanorians uh, in the next episode. And then what is that final image of the season, right? I loved the way that we closed out the last season. I mean, really like the, you know, to me, those, the, the, the sort of the crucial moments, the, the concluding sort of climactic, you know, not climactic, but the, 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 the image that we leave you with at the end of season one are Manway's tears, right? As the war to begin all wars goes forward and Morgoth is captured in the second season. It's that juxtaposition of Theonor grieving, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and holding his father's crown and Morgoth holding the iron crown with the Silmarils in and with his burned hand, right? Um, the juxtaposition between the two kings on the two thrones, um, what, you know, is my is is the, the 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 really wonderful kind of take home image at the end of season two. What do we do in season three, right? Uh, the rising of the sun, sure, but but what exactly? Where do we where do we leave them? How do we, you know, the the rising of the sun is a very different kind of thing, right? Um, so. How do we handle that? And I've started talking about that a little bit this time. I can imagine some rising of the sun scenes that we can do to uh, uh, to show, but we have to be careful and think about where exactly we're leaving action, the action and where we're leaving people at the end of the, the final episode. So, all right. So that's what we have for next time. So thank you everybody for your, uh, for your uh, time and effort and contributions here today uh, for just narrowly getting Amros off the hook again. Uh, and uh, uh, and I, uh, uh, I'm glad that you guys could join us here today. So We'll get him eventually. We'll get him eventually. <laughs> Amros's days are numbered, man. We're coming for him. Sooner or later, he won't be able to escape us. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.